In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1590 to 1603. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1590. Story number one. Dead languages written by Sasanic. Elven languages were difficult and required immense dexterity of both the vocal cords and tongue to achieve the most basic sentences. It took an elf youngster, on average, 16 human years to speak their tongue competently, and it took thrice as long to be on the higher vocabulary level akin to that of a scholar, or even a philosopher. And such elven language, considered an ancient and dead language for millennia, was a pivotal in the various elven communities. It had no official name, having deferred between those who spoke it over the course of time. It was considered one of the hardest languages to speak, but the benefits dwarfed the efforts required to master it. It had magical properties that bestowed the speaker with the abilities of healing, or of destruction, or of whatever the speaker wished. Whereas it was, the elves had taken responsibility for such power and had vowed never to use it for anything other than the betterment of the elven race. Every race had their own dead languages, of course. Each race had tried to show the benefits of their dead languages, but after an aspiring human scholar had tried to recite a basic sentence in his race's dead language, he had inadvertently made himself combust into a shower of boiling blood and scorched flesh. From that day forth, humans were forbidden, by threat of removal of their tongue, or in extreme circumstances, death, by the Council of Magi to utter a single word in their dead language, unless authorized by the council themselves, which was not a single word. The high priest Alabiron had been one of the greatest elves to have ever mastered the elven dead language. He had a comfortable position at the council, and was sent to assist the elven forces as they held back an orc assault on a local city. However, the defenders had underestimated the green menace, and the attack had been more organized than expected. The city stone walled outer ring had been breached, and the defenders caught off guard for the first hour. For the next three days, they howled out in vain for anybody to break the siege and save the beleaguered inhabitants from the last defensive stone walled ring. Both humans and elves had set aside their differences in their darkest hour and had vowed to stand side by side until death, if need be. Alabiron had spent his time tending to the wounded, using the dead language to assist with healing. But of course, what gives must also take. It had taken a toll on him, emaciated and withered. His once strong stride was now weak and bumble. I cannot do this for much longer, he had wheezed to his aides. I will not survive another day of the seeding, he whimpered. We can only hope for a miracle. On the fifth day, that miracle had emerged from the horizon in a flash of light. The first lookout noted the figure on the horizon atop a horse, galloping towards the orc battle camps that lined the city wall breach. The green horde had roused quickly at the new arrival, and soon it had whipped itself into a frenzy. The lookouts didn't bother reporting their arrival to anyone. They were sure to die in the first seconds of meeting the horde. Except... When the rider came within a mere feet of the horde, a single cry was bellowed as the rider raised a sword to the sky. Moriter. A brilliant flash of light blasted out, and a wave ran across the orc swarm. 
Those closest to the rider were blasted to ash, and those further back were scorched to death. In a mere heartbeat, the initial swarm was reduced to blackened gore. Another cry from the rider echoed out across the eerily silent battlefield. Bagna Prietor May! Instantly, the forms of hundreds of golden soldiers seemingly materialized out of nowhere, all bearing swords and shields. They charged as one into the orc masses, who were both caught between their charging and the new fighters, or were trying to force themselves deeper into the city. Upon hearing the human bellow his dead language, and as a result make a mockery of the elven laws, Alabiron's rage consumed him. He forgot about his weak and frail form and tried to scurry up the fortification stairwell to witness the human-breaking magi law. He saw the human rider dismount their horse calmly, letting the golden figure slay and kill with a righteous fervor. The rider looked to Alabiron, the elf scowling from under the hooded cloak. Senatantum, the rider called out, and from above the city descended a humanoid form sporting a golden set of wings. One such figure landed atop the battlements aside Alabiron and his retinue of guards. One of the guards approached the figure, who took a step to the guard. Instantly, the guard lowered his spear and went slack as the figure reached out. Alabiron made out the figure with a human female, and she was almost as beautiful as an alvin handmaiden. Her eyes were pure white and left a gentle smoke trail when she moved. She was dressed in a light from human armor and accommodated her wings. When she reached out and placed a hand lovingly on the guard's face, he jerked suddenly and fell to his knees with a soft gasp. The woman strode past him and approached Alabiron. Halt! He hissed. Stay back, apparition! He raised a hand in threat to conjure a spell. Still... She approached. The guards went to take up a defensive cordon around their elven leader, but all dropped their weapons one by one and fell to their knees, some weeping gently as the woman passed them. Alabiron backpedaled, tripping on his robes and landing in a heap. The woman stopped at his feet and crouched down. She held out a hand to Alabiron and touched his cheek as she'd done with the first guard. Alabiron's eyes widened as he felt the invigorating wave of warmth rush over him. He suddenly forgot about the war, about the orc horde at the battlements, about the dead and dying humans and elves that numbered in the hundreds, about the human rider who spoke the forbidden language. He felt his muscles tighten, and the urge to rise overcame him. He jumped to his feet, looking down at his hands as if he were seeing them for the first time instead of withered and decrepit fingers that he was accustomed to. He saw hands belonging to a man half his age. He was rejuvenated, seemingly inexplicably. How? He simply asked as the woman took a step back, making room for Alabiron's guards to rise. They too seemed to be back at their physical peak that they had once been before the conflict. The language is called Latin, the woman said, her soft voice soothing the two here. We are the souls of those once fallen, returned to stand alongside the living in their darkest hour. She looked at the battlefield, where the wave of golden warriors had made quick work of the horde and were now amongst the dead and dying human elf defenders, reviving and healing those they could. 
Alabiron went to speak, and the angelic woman once more, but she was gone. He watched as the golden figures dissipated, and the entrance of the summoner. The crowds gathered around the rider, and all cheered. What do we do about this? one of the guards asked. The human rider has broken Magi law. A human has just saved everyone down there, along with me and you. Alabiron chuckled, a smile across his features. A few bad words in times of war can't hurt anybody. End of story. Story number two. The Human Computer Test, written by Fox Corp. When humanity first began to integrate into the galactic community, they made several strange comments whenever new technologies were implemented. These comments were widespread, being uttered by countless thousands of unique individuals. To this day, we haven't gotten a proper answer other than laughter from any human who asks such a thing. The first recorded instance of the phrase was only one day after humanity's uplink to the galactic internet. Popular computing chip manufacturer Texlon Incorporated announced their star power 10,000. It outclassed their previous model by over two times the core speed with only 10% more power draw. The process was ridiculously advanced for the time, running on a revolutionary one nanometer process. Such small processes were thought impossible due to the jumping of transistors, but through and disclosed company advancements, it was achieved. Jump in efficiency and ability led to much online discussion. Much of it was heated debate regarding the competition's ability to counter such a massive leap in performance. Humans, however, seemed to have one meaningful addition to this discussion. It was a simple but elusive question. But... Can it run crisis? The question was small and isolated. It didn't receive widespread attention anywhere other than in the human circles. Some commotion was caused, but the phrase faded to obscurity within a matter of days. Until it happened once again, Texblon's competitor, Ringworld Enterprise, managed to surpass the one nanometer process within the year. They reduced the process to a staggering 0.5 nanometer, even more processing power was attained and power draw was actually reduced. Once again, the humans had one question, but can it run a crisis? This time, the phrase was more widely noticed. Society began to ask what the question meant exactly. Humanity was still a rather new and elusive race. They hadn't made a significant impact on the galactic internet yet. Such a phrase being repeated multiple times demanded some investigation by sociologists within the galaxy. When more research into human technologies was completed, multiple shocked revelations were made. First, humanity already had achieved 0.5 nanometer process. In fact, humanity had surpassed it. However, due to humanity's limited trading partnerships and interstellar connections, they didn't really understand that it was a big deal. Second, Humans had combined both quantum and conventional computing with a single CPU. Such processes allowed humans to calculate problems that were extremely difficult for conventional computers to even attempt to answer. They could also effectively store the results. Most shocking of all, the internal human internet was abuzz with news of a project that could finally run Crisis. More investigation confirmed the rumors. Humanity was building a megastructure around a red dwarf within one of their systems. When humanity was asked more about both the phrase and the structure, 
Responses were secretive and unclear. Now the galaxy began to ask questions. What is a crisis? Is crisis a hyper-advanced simulation? Is crisis the meaning to life? Only some of our questions will be answered. After 15 years, humanity unveiled its project to the great galaxy, the Matryoshka brain. According to humanity, it was capable of simulating universes, uploading minds, solving entropy, discovering new technologies, figuring out holes within theories of physics, and most importantly, it ran Crisis! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1591 Story number one, Giants of the Cosmos, written by Stumpy Jim. Landing down on planet Turka as a part of the diplomatic entourage to the home world of the Galactic Federation, Tarha was eager to be one of the first to learn the GF's history, politics, and culture, bringing that knowledge to the Senak people, his people. As the shuttle settled down and the ramp lowered, the whole delegation stepped off onto a grassy ground and were greeted by the Terex, a race of mammals covered in long, fiery red fur with five bright blue eyes. The Galactic Federation greets you into our grand community. The head of the Terex made a long, low bow. Raising his head, he waved a hand out to a slim, shining pod. This bus shall take us to the Senate building, where you will be formally inducted into the Galactic Federation, and you can then explore it at your leisure. As the Sanak delegation settled into the craft, it jolted up and began whizzing through the air like lightning. After a few minutes of rushing towards the distant mountain, they eventually passed by it, and everyone's jaws dropped at seeing the monolith of metal and glass shooting up to the sky, of a design that seemed nothing like the design philosophy of the Terek. Not for its height, but for how as closer to the delegation was, the larger it seemed to become. After half an hour, the pod had finally landed in front of the titanic structure that seemed impossible to Hutaha. It is truly amazing, isn't it? One of the Turek asked, noticing the Sanak's expression. Tarha was at a loss for words until he turned to a Turek. How did you do this? The Turek laughed and shook his head. I wish I could tell you, but my people weren't the ones to build it. Blinking in shock, Tarha looked at the magnificent structure, then back at Turek. Then who did make this? As the delegation began to move, the Turek, talking, motioned for Tarha to follow. My name is Go, the Turk began, bowing his head to Terha. I am Terha, Terha returned with a nod. Terha, Go began. This magnificent superstructure was built by an ancient and almost godlike species, known to the galaxy as uh, godlike. Terha mumbled to himself with a frown. But there are no gods, are there? Go chuckled. Correct, there are no real gods. He continued as the delegation stopped at a set of doors so dizzyingly large. It was a wonder how they even moved, but these beings, I hazard to say, are pretty close to it. What are they? Taha asked, his eyes darting to the titanic doors that opened without assistance. Well, we don't know what they are exactly, but we do know one thing. They are giants, Go said with a reverent tone, entering the massive foyer to the superstructure. Do you know the standard measurements of the GF? 
Taha frowned in thought. I believe I'm around twelve colonels tall. Yes, that sounds about right. Go nodded in affirmation. And I'm around eleven, making me shorter than you. Right, Taha nodded, wondering where this conversation was going. Mal, you see, the average height of these giants is 133 krenels tall. Go told, seeing the almost horrified expression on Taha's face. Yes, just over ten times either of our heights. How can something so possibly big even survive? Taha asked with panic. How have you survived all this time against such... such... things? Go laughed as the delegation entered an elevator. We've survived easy enough. And have you even thrived by simply being in their proximity? Are they benevolent then? Taha gulped. No, Go said. Then seeing the terror in his new friend's eyes, he laughed and calmed him down. It's not like they're evil, but rather their motivations are odd and unpredictable. Meaning that while one could just not even see us, another might just start killing with almost no provocation. Well, a third might give us a bountiful meal while they're massive foods that could feed an entire city for a day. So benevolent is not the right sort of word for it. Taha stared at the ground for a long moment, moving with a delegation out of the corridor. Then, when a thought popped into his head, he turned to go. How long do these giants live for? So long that entire civilizations could be born, soar to the greatest heights, fall, and be erased from history. All within the span of one lifetime of a giant. Ghost told, glancing at the look of smallness the races had experienced when coming to the Terrak homeworld. What's even more absurd is that in the time that you were born till you matured into adulthood would take one of their children to be conceived, gestate, and then be birthed. That's incredible, Taha shouted, surprising the delegates. He apologized and turned back to go. How long does it take for one to mature? Generations, Go said simply. Awed by the near impossibility of such a statement, Taha gulped, feeling terror set in even deeper than before. Then a grim thought came to him. They aren't still around, are they? Go halted and stroked his chin for a time, looking up at the colossal image on the wall, barely being able to see even the middle of it. I don't know. One day the giants had just left and we never saw them again for millennia. If it weren't for the impeccable oral traditions and the superstructure, the modern Terek would have dismissed it as superstitious nonsense. But here we are. Taha couldn't argue with what he saw, his anxiety easing. But there have been many reports by various member species of the GF of encountering titanic space vehicles in the void, and occasionally the landing and disembarkation of a giant on various planets. Sometimes entire member species have disappeared off their homeworlds, with evidence of giants having been there, Go added. So, what would the GF do if the giants attacked? Tar asked, even though he already knew then dreaded the answer. Well, they would simply cease to exist, Go said with a shrug, but that would assume that they would see us as a possible threat. And, uh, with how big they are, most conventional weapons would almost be nothing but a minor inconvenience. Exactly. What do they look like? Go pondered for a while, then spoke. Well, they are bipedal, mostly hairless with the exception of the top of their head, and sometimes their face. Their skin colors very greatly, but uh, from being pale as the clouds to being nearly as dark as coal, they appear very similar to primates with how their body is structured. Only the chin doesn't seem to jut out as much, not so hunched over, 
and they don't even have hands for feet. Five digits on each of their two hands and five on their feet. A species of cosmic giants roaming the void space, uncaring and maybe unknowing of the species it might destroy. Taha had said to himself, still struggling to wrap his head around everything that he'd heard. I never thought that I'd feel so small and weak after we had achieved FTL travel. Neither did we, Go agreed solemnly. But that is why the GF exists, so that we can all feel small together. End of story. Story number two. Curiosity Killed the Cat. Written by Random3x. Oh, I have a question, teacher. How did humans develop scientifically? The juvenile critic asked, holding up his arms eagerly. Kenner looked at the child that he had been hired to tutor and pursed his lips in thought. There are many ways to answer that question, Clix. Can you be a bit more specific? Um, Clix tapped his fingers against his chin, mimicking a gesture that he'd seen his teacher make when thinking. How about we start with engineering? Well, uh, we developed much like y'all people did. Starting with the basics. One rock on top of another and such. Then we progressed. Lots of trial and error. Got rid of what didn't work and pushed forwards what did. Eventually, you get to the concrete jungle of today. Kenna answered. So you made concrete only recently? Clicks asked. Oh no. We made that stuff millennia before we even understood rocket science. Kenna quickly answered. Millennia? Clicks tilted his head in confusion. Yeah. Some people just mixed stuff together just to see what would happen. I just kind of made it. Kenner explained. Was there no controlled method? Clicks shouted in surprise. Not really. A lot of humanity steps were just us doing random things to see what happened. Kenner explained with a light shrug. But that is crazy. My daddy always told me why sentience should never step forwards before knowing what is there. Clicks puffed up his chest in pride, referencing his father. That is a valid method. A very safe one as well, but, uh, humans are, uh, well, uh... Kenner's voice trailed off as he searched for the right words. Humans are curious. Curious? Clicks repeated in confused tone, unfamiliar with the words. You're curious right now. It is just being eager to learn, Kenner explained. Oh, then I'm very curious in all things, but why does this make humans ignore danger? Clicks asked. Well, uh, it is more our curiosity overrules our need to avoid danger. In some cases, we're even ignorant of the danger. Kenner answered. Like our explorers, there is a lot of danger in exploring unknown places. But countless people did it anyway. We're like the human homeworld's North and South Pole. Many explorers tried to reach them. Some even died. Died? Clicks repeated in shock. Yeah. We humans will ignore dangers just to sate our curiosity. Sometimes, though, we are ignorant of the dangers and press on anyway. Kenner replied with a nod. Oh, like what? Clicks asked eagerly, meaning forward. Well, take radiation. The scientists who discovered many radioactive materials didn't know that it was dangerous because they were curious. They went out and identified lots of radioactive elements. And they live long, happy lives, uh, right? Clicks asked. Uh, no. 
A lot of them died more than likely because of the radiation. One of them even had a notebook that has to be contained because it's radioactive, Kenner answered. But if they died, how did they satisfy their curiosity? Clix asked. Well, they don't always die. Also, the ones that do almost always are the sort of that would be fine with dying in the pursuit of whatever it was. Finally, we have an old saying about this kind of stuff. Kenner paused and gently pushed Clix back into his seat as the desk was beginning to tilt. Curiosity killed the cat. Kenner paused. Surely that dissuades curiosity? Clix asked. It would if it was the entire saying. The full saying is, curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought it back. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1592 Story number one, Fairy Woman, written by Nora Nyad Toast. Yelkoin, Karen said expectantly, holding out her hand in a customary way. I have two, the human in front of her demurred. I was asked to go ahead, my uh, friend will be here in shortly. Very well, Caron replied. The human man dropped two coins into Caron's head. The second the coins made contact, Time stopped all around her. The trees and the wind ceased moving. Only the gentle rush of the river continued. This way, please, Caron said, gesturing towards a small robot at the riverbank. What about my, um, uh, friend? The man asked. Their payment is received. I will know who they are when they arrive. But only one may cross the river at a time. Suddenly, there was movement amidst the trees, and a young human woman emerged. Karen froze. Um, hello, fairy woman, the woman asked. Sorry about that, I, I, I got lost. She waved at the man and then continued. Thanks for waiting, I, uh, Karen began, her sentence tailing off onto nothing. For the first time in millennia, she was speechless. Um, the man asked, I is everything all right? Karen blinked several times before replying. I am perturbed. Only one soul can accompany me at a time. It is, uh, not possible. For more than one soul to be present here. Oh, the woman said. I don't know what to say, but we both died at the same time. The exact same time? Karen asked. Down to the smallest unit of time possible in the universe. No, no, that's not possible. No human could do this. To this, the woman burst into peals of laughter. Karen eyed her warily. I'm not human, she replied. She's not, the man added. He walked up to the human-appearing woman and took her hand with a smile. She's an AI. I was dying. Cancer. Terrible disease. And she didn't want to stay on Earth without me. The woman nodded. I know every human legend ever told. All I did for months was research them, and I concluded that you were real, fairy woman. Geron said nothing. Her mind worked over time to process what she was hearing. The woman looked up at the man and planted a kiss on his cheek. I realized that the only one soul that can cross the river at a time. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to find him again after he died, so I calculated the moment that he would die, down to the smallest possible unit of time. And then I self-destructed. Then it worked. It worked. I got here at the same time he did. She bounced up and down on her feet with glee. Fairy woman, the man added. I know this is strange. I don't think you've ever seen this before. Geron nodded slowly. No, I have not, she replied. I'm in sure house to proceed. We don't either, the woman said, but we paid the toll. We've every right to be here. She looked nervous as she asked. 
What's beyond the river Styx, fairy woman? I don't know, Charon replied. I'm the fairy woman, and the fairy woman alone. I do not see what lies beyond. I do not visit. It is not for me to know. Then, uh, the woman asked, do you know if our souls will stay together once we cross? I do not know. Charon was impassive as she said this. What lies beyond the sticks, she thought. The woman nodded as if she confirmed the theory that she had been working on. I ask for one thing of you, fairy woman. The woman continued. Please let us cross together. It might be the last time that we ever see each other. Tears sprung to her eyes. I know that it's not allowed, the man added, but we had so little time on earth. Please, please let us have a little bit more. Garon considered the pleas of the human and the AI. She turned to the river Styx, whose night-colored water flowed as it had done for millennia. Perhaps, Garon thought, this river requires change. It has been too long. She turned to the couple and intoned. Very well. Thank you, the human and the AI cried. Thank you, thank you, thank you. They, still holding hands, scrambled onto the small boat. Garon took it up the position at the rear of the boat and began to guide it down the river. I do not know what lies beyond the sticks, Garon thought. But perhaps those who rule those places, like I do here, should pay heed. Change is afoot, and these two shall not be the last who do such things. She spared a glance at the couple, who were gazing down the river, awed by the surroundings. This will not be a last journey together, Garon thought. The couple on her ancient rowboat had awakened something new and strange within her. I'll make sure of this, she thought, because I will accompany you both beyond the sticks. End of story. Story number two. Human Excess, written by Neil Lithy. Glint surveyed the room before settling on a lone occupant sitting alone. The human's meal and drink seeming sparse for such a species. Approaching the male, Glint studied him. Simple jumpsuit with a single sidearm holstered to his thigh. Facial hair was minimal. Truth be told, the face was so smooth that he would be mistaken for female without them. Pardon, human. May I sit and discuss some things with you? To his credit, the human did not seem startled. Uh, sure. Constable, right? A flick of his ear, Glint sat. That is roughly accurate. I want to understand human excess. Tendencies of these ridiculous excesses. Turning his calm about to show the freighter destroying an attack fleet, the image of mechs dropping right into the firefight, then to the garishly red ship with yellow stripes positively blistling with guns. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that's a lot. Uh, see, some of that was secret hush-hush stuff. Chewing on what smelled like an almost burnt sliver of tuba, the human paused. Okay, so the freighter thing needs some history. Well, uh, to the mechs too, but uh, let me start with your first bit, huh? Most of you guys either discovered wolf tribes or were found by wolf-capable species. Then you got gifted and ansible and connected to the galactic communications. Back on Earth, we were doing okay getting some colonies up in the solar system when we figured out on our own how to make an ansible receiver. The officer's ears perked up. Before you learned about warp drive, according to my history teacher, it was someone trying to detect warp or something to prove FTL was possible. Anyway, the important part is that we started hearing all you folk out there. These wolf guys invading the bunny people, crocodile guys attacking foxkin and stuff. Our species have names, you know. 
Yeah, but I don't have the time to look them all up, and it ain't important for this. Meiwa's like, oh yeah, so we heard all about these fights and invaders. Only a matter of time till you guys came knocking on our door. So every nation and every potential shipbuilder starts cold designing ships for the newly needed interstellar navy. One person was trying to prepare a logistics ship. Glynth holds up a hand for a moment. Sorry, my translator gave multiple things to what you just said. Nodding and swallowing some of his drink. Yeah, that is the problem you had to do with it too. See, with the proper governments, you were building proper warships. This one builder was trying to think of logistics, getting supplies, any supplies, to the front lines, so they borrowed the concept and adapted it. Or lots of concepts. Sorry, I got a D in that class. Anyway, this ship was supposed to go to a system and quickly mine up materials and generate things needed for the fleet. It would have been a massive target. So, it was bristling with countermeasures, guns and missiles, shields and armor to handle ramming attacks, factory processing, cargo holds, and these massive mining beams. Tilting his head, he listens. This roughly sounds like the ship in question. Yeah, well, the government didn't buy a thing. The prototype had been built, but they had their own designs, ships with standardized parts. And using information from the Ansible, had come up with both stealth gear and warp drives. Thing is, the guy that built the prototype had come up with his own FTL drive based on the Ansible, a fold drive. Since no one wanted his ship, he had her flagged as a civilian vessel. His daughter took her out of Seoul while people were still bickering about it. Yes, flicked a moment. But how does this explain your designs and actions? Almost choking on his food, the human coughs. Well, everybody thought you guys were like light years ahead of us and everything, so we tried super hard to uh, catch up. But we were mostly on par with you guys. We just missed a few points on power plants and warp drives. So everything we made was for these scary aliens that could whoop us at every turn. We thought that we were bringing rocks to a laser fight. So we went with off-the-wall designs and overgunned everything. So our destroyers were better gunned than your battleships. Our stealth systems meant the mechs we made were really effective since you had to get close to properly target them. That logistics ship... Way overdone because we thought that it would be too small. Well, that answers on the first two. But what about this thing? Marketing. Uh, everyone know now thinks humans overdo weapons and are totally crazy. So mercenaries lean into that. Bolting extra guns to the house look ridiculous. Red paint goes faster. Everything you guys expect. And people seeing crazy mercs showing up and playing metal on all comm channels. They surrender rather than getting mulched. Uh, Last I heard, the Aurelel something uh, surrendered when the logistics ship arrived with the cargo that the people had purchased. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1593. Story number one. So, uh, this is our fuel cellar, eh? The room looks like a very large warehouse with pallets upon pallets of dark metal boxes neatly aligned. Kor is a ship engineer in the Eta Karine Defense Force, and he is welcoming his first human technician on board. He is motivated and knows that both species share a sense of humor. Karinidas are laid back and patient. Humans are quite very enthusiastic. Hmm, there is a sense of raw power in that place, sir. It almost feels uh, threatening. Feel the energy! He moved his arms around enthusiastically. Uh, I can't wait to know what this mighty ship runs on. Powerful stuff we humans couldn't understand. Right? He extends his arms and gently rubs one of the metal boxes, which feels cool to the touch. 
Oh, don't you worry about what we're keeping in there. I cannot possibly blow up or any crap like that. Oh, why is that so? Are you keeping your fuel units within ultra-cool dampening fields with vortex scrubbers in case there's a leak? Call, looking horrified. No, 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 no. These are not like human fuel cells. Not at all. We don't carry those in the FTL ship. That would be madness. No, we don't mind carrying concentrated energy stuff around. Uh, lithium halide, plutonium, thorium, hexane, uh, proton plasma torons, uh, antimatter drops. Uh, that's the crap. We do mind. There is an uncomfortable silence as the human starts tapping his thumb on the dark metal bottle. And the alien looks tense. He knows what the next question will be. What is uh, in the bottles? Okay, fair enough. I knew that it would come to this. Listen carefully, Jerry. And please, don't assume that every sentient race out there wants to carry antimatter in their back pockets. The human looks on with a blank face. We can't afford to carry unconcentrated energy sources through FTL jumps. Why? Because we're not suicidal. No offense. None taken. As you might know, we have developed powerful subatomic energy extractors, which basically rip protons from an isotope and turn the isotope into slightly lower mass element, generating lots of energy in the process. We call it degenerate antifusion. Jerry confused. Antifusion. Why not call it fission? That would be a totally different thing. We're not breaking up atoms. We're merely robbing them of their precious protons. Y you get it? Hey, I'm not a physicist. Just the ship propulsion technician. So, um... This, uh, antifusion, uh, what's it about anyway? We can take uh, some atoms and turn them into lighter atoms, generating energy. The optimal one is carbon. Our ship eats carbon, not uranium, not antimatter. We store our carbon into fatty carbon chains. Fatty whatever what? Let me look up the triglycerides and come up with an explanation for you. The alien taps on the tablet and scrolls through formulas and molecules. Okay, um, palmitic acid, steric acid, oblic acid. We bind the three molecules together so that they form a stable paste. Then we soak it into a liquid of glucose and churn to improve the carbon output. The alien continues. Our engines injectors heat up the paste and then turn individual carbon atoms into boron using quantum foam torque fields that you wouldn't understand. Boron waste is then used for ship hull construction. The alien hands the tablet to the now very bored human. He shrugs, taps on some of the molecule diagrams, and runs a search in Earth Encyclopedia. Then a gigantic grin illuminates his face. Dude! What? Dude, man, oh man! Your ship runs on white chocolate! Also, uh, I want to taste it. End of story. Story number two. Humans hallucinate every night. Written by JCB112. Livestream online. Help me. I've locked myself in the bathroom and I'm scared. I think there's something very wrong with my human roommate. R right now, he he's tossing and turning in his sleep. Talking, whispering. Sometimes, even crying. Oh, or laughing. Now, I've locked myself in the bathroom just in case he decides to get violent. I really, 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 really need help right now. So I'm going to divulge everything wrong with a human up until this point. This is being live-streamed. So, if the stream suddenly cuts, uh, 
Please send help. Dorm 27502A, Complex 5, Galactic Union, Co-Species University, Union Campus. The second campus of Union. The planet, not the space station. Distant thuds. Feck! Okay, it's getting worse. I, I need to continue now. See ya. Uh, everyone knows humans are the new kids in the block. They're unassumingly bland. Humanoid, two legs, two arms, fuzzy head, sort of fuzzy body, two eyes and a mouth. Barely any canines, blah, 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 blah. You get the point. J -j Just start Galactopedia if you want a biology lesson. Well, but when I signed up, I didn't even know what they were. Now I do. But, like, you get your roommate assignment literally on the day of arrival. So when I saw the assignment roster, I was immediately freaked out and uh, rightfully so. Because the university has a tendency to pair you up with the worst possible kinds of species. You know, when you enrolled into the GUCSU, you sort of know what you're signing up for. New experiences, bleeding-edge research, broadening your cultural horizons, networking, getting fast-tracked in, in, into certain careers in a galactic uni because of certain prerequisites and preferential referral system. Anyways, you, you get the drill. The, the risk of signing up for the GUCSU, however, is the very real possibility that you'd be paired with uh, some less than hospitable species. You get the Thalacnoxans, who will literally kick you out for dorm so that they can get their buddies to bunk up with them, leaving you to sort out accommodations yourself. Then you get the Velma, the fecking bug people. You haven't really experienced a horror until you bunk with one of them. The absolute horror when you see them in the corner of your eye, or when grabbing a midnight snack and the lights off. <laughs> Pure terror fuel. Then, then you get the Tulare. They're just bird people, but trust me when I say this, they're not as cute or as noble as you might think. Anyway, it's cut to the chase. So I get my room assignment, Complex 5. Okay, that, that, that's a mixed bag. It's built for humanoids so we can discount the fecking Valmar or, or any kind of fecked up cosmic horror being assigned there. Flore, now, now, now here's where the problems start to come in. 5A is technically the fancier version of 5B. Better facilities, swankier furniture, expensification, nice bathrooms, but uh, it's also where they assign the new species, uh, it's to give them a nice warm impression to the galactic community, to make them feel welcome and all that cookie-cutter diplomacy crap. But yeah, I knew that I was in hot water because I was being assigned to the true unknown. Hey, human. So with a quick Galactopedia search, I found out a bit about them, and they seemed uh, alright. I'd been glued to my phone for so long that I didn't even realize that I'd reached the room. Upon entering, uh, my, my, my jaws dropped. There was a banner strung across the little entryway of the room where you left your shoes and whatnot. This couldn't have been in the university thing. They weren't responsible, so uh, I knew this must have been the humans doing. The banner read in Galactic Standard, Welcome, Rumi! So I knew that I was working with a literate alien, one where there was considerate, but I still kept my guard up. Upon entry into the surprisingly spacious combined living room and kitchen area, a wonderful aroma assaulted me. The human had apparently prepared me something quick enough to make it under an hour. He greeted me with a warm smile, and the human take on the tower nut mix cake. It was at that point that things seemed to be a done deal. 
We respected each other's space, we set boundaries, we spoke about each other's species, quirks, everything. After the day's orientation lectures, I thought things would go down well. <sighs> Spoiler alert. It didn't. The first night clued me into the strangeness that was the human sleep cycle. You see, we at all have very deep sleep, to the point where you probably wouldn't even be able to wake us with nothing short of a constant physical stimuli. Irregardless of the fact, no, no species really makes any real uh, noise when sleeping. At least, non-intelligible ones. Sure, some may, may, may have snoring problems, obstructive apneic events, or a thing that happens in us air-breathing species after all. But actual, proper, vocalized words, full-on sentences, weird bouts of laughter. Now that's the stuff of terrors. Never gig begs the question, are they truly sleeping? Or are they faking it? That night, I had the human talking throughout the night. It was punctuated by periods of quiet, but it felt as if it was talking constantly. Okay, I, I might be exaggerating here, but still. I first assumed that it was him being homesick and just video calling his parents or, or, or something, you know. So I didn't think too much of it. The second night was where I knew that this couldn't be a video call, because nothing he spoke made sense. There seemed to be no rhyme or reason to what he said. It could start with something like, The exotic butters are here to stay. The more, the more concerning threats such as, Can Elto be kicked like a football? The enigma such as, Can aliens dream? Thankfully, sleep took me as it always did. But every time I awoke, I awoke to the nagging anxiety of my own demise. And so it went, day after day, as I attempted to ignore the problem. We had separate rooms, after all, and I could lock my door. Surely everything would be all right, and... Then it happened. Two weeks in and about half an hour before I went to sleep, with my earbuds on to cancel out any noise, I saw my doorknob shaking. It rattled visibly, constantly, and it wasn't just a few seconds of it either. It was a full, uninterrupted minute of the door rattling. I dared not take my earbuds off as I hid underneath the sheets. It eventually went away, but at that point I needed to confront the human about it. And so it went, the human describing to me this issues of rampant sleep-talking and the rare occasional sleepwalk. He seemed embarrassed, but increasingly confused as I told him I could not understand what he meant by the fact that the nature of these actions would tie into yet another concept called dreaming. When he explained it to me, I, uh, I thought he was joking. He told me that every human had uh, visions during their sleep, some more vivid than others, and sometimes not at all, but more often than not, these visions took the form of full-on, as he described them, movies that are forced to watch or live through with little to no agency. That terrified me. So humans were effectively forced to live entirely different lives for eight hours without any say or any control of their hallucinatory states. The fact that nightmares existed simply added fuel to the fire, imagining going the rest of a tired day of being awake, only to sleep and find out that you are now deep into eight-hour-long horror movie with no control. 
The revelation that made me terrified of the human morsel was then any Thalaxian brute or any Valmont bug. Because this means that this human, no, all humans go through literal hell on Earth every single day. No other species did this. I tried to come to terms with this. I really did, but the fear still lingered at the back of my mind. Especially after I found a documentary on a human murdering someone in cold blood in their sleepwalks. What if one day that was me? The human, Patrick. He was an honest and earnest man. Smart, shy, but very kind. But at night, he... Uh, he wasn't himself. At night, he would be Veltax, the despoiler, and I would be none the wiser. And that brings me to my current situation. As I sit here, bed sheets and blankets inside of a bathtub with Patrick stomping all around the dorm, having somehow found his way into my room, what do I do? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1594 Always operational, written by T and Tungsten We were drifting through space with no hope for survival. Our engines were shot, my hyperdrive had burned out, and half of our crew had been vaporized along with four decks of our ship when the shields failed us. My scales felt cold and wet while my first officer gave me a status report. The bridge was completely undamaged, which made it feel all the more surreal that my ship was dying along with my crew. I wanted to yell and mangle my seat with my claws, but I controlled my emotions and pretended to be cold and calculated. I knew that this was what my crew needed right now. Captain Sir, what are your orders? Asked my first officer. I could see the same emotions in her eyes. She knew. Distance to nearest friendly outpost, I asked Garen, my communications officer. In a desperate move for survival, we had followed an unexplored and unstable hyperlane into the sticks of the Orion Cygnus arm. I knew the answer would be bad, but there was no point in hiding it from the crew. Garland swallowed heavily. 578 light years, Captain. Even if we somehow repaired the sublight engines and put the crew into cryosleep, the ship was already barely holding together, and it would never survive the long journey. Not to mention the hundreds of years that would pass. Families long dead and forgotten. The war may be lost. We might return to a glassed homeworlds. Or even worse, they might have become colonies for the Farron. Most of my crew would probably prefer a quick death. I knew I would. My thoughts were interrupted. Contact! 500 clicks, sir, yelled the tactical officer. And they followed us. Garen! ID! Unknown, sir. The computer can't identify it. It's not Farron's, at least. Did it follow us? Where did it come from? Not from hyperspace, sir. They just appeared out of nowhere along with a huge photon flash. Coking deck! Not any types that we've ever seen before, the tactical officer. On the screen! I commanded. What my officers showed me was like no ship I'd ever seen before. Besides, maybe in ancient records, it was angular and ugly, like a hammer made of steel with many angular protrusions. Its sublight engines were huge and its armor was thick. Probably ablative. The sensors showed only a weak deflector shield currently active. It was not optimized for hyperspace at all. It was maybe 100 meters long and 25 meters wide, 
and noticeably dense were its size. It's scanning us too, sir. Weapon signatures? I don't think so, sir. It's hard to tell. They might use unknown tech. I did not order to raise the shield simply because we had none left. All emitters were burned out. We were sitting ducks. For a split second, I considered funneling all of our remaining power into the lasers in order to try and disable the ship. Maybe we could capture it safely. Do not let that unexpected lifeline escape. Yes, my thoughts were that desperate. I am ashamed of it, but I did decide against it. That's what the Farron would do, I thought. And it could end as well as mutual destruction. Garen, send the first contact protocol. Tell them that we come in peace. They were quicker, sir. They, we got the message, along with the translation protocol. Read it. Unknown spaceship, this is the SDFS Marinus. On your current call specter, you are about to violate Terran space in 15 minutes. Identify yourself or turn around. Peace is an option. I was taken aback. An option? Yes, sir. That's what it says. I did not know whether I should be relieved or concerned. But in the end, my desire for survival overwhelmed my caution. Whoever these Terrans were, at that moment they offered the only chance of survival for my crew. Looked pretty small and primitive, but I hoped that they could at least evacuate parts of my crew. Open a channel, I said to Garen. SDF Valus Moranus, this is the Union ship Anna. We come in peace, but we are currently unable to comply to you due to injury failure. We require assistance. No hostility is intended, I dictated. An answer came almost immediately. Union ship Tana, your ship design is not known to us. Please confirm, you are not human. Please define Union. As expected, it was actually a first contact situation. Affirmative, we are neither human nor Terran. The Union is a coalition of seven sentient species and roughly 55 systems. After this, it took a while until they answered again. Union ship Tana, your offer of peace is under consideration. Special permission has been granted and you may enter Terran space under our supervision and escort. We will tow you to a space dock, Proxima Centauri B. Prepare for warp bubble enclosure. The what now? What kind of bubble? But before I could answer, things got hectic. Captain, hyperspace activity detected. Someone is coming after us. I began to grind my sharp teeth. Had to be the Farron. Nobody else knew where we had fled to, and nobody else would be willing to go down an unstable hyperlane. This would be the end of us, but the least we could do is warn the Terrans. Terran ship, be advised. We were being pursued by an enemy ship. It will arrive here shortly. You should flee. Your technology is no match for them. The Terrans promptly responded and fired up their engines. They burned away from us at high speed and rotated their ship so that the hammerhead front faced us directly. Captain, I'm reading nuclear signatures from the Terran ship. Union ship, explain yourself. I swallowed heavily. We are currently at war with a species called the Farron. They are the cause of the damage to our ship. They must have followed our hyperspace signature. We are not trying to ambush you. Our weapons are defunct. Now it took even longer for them to answer. Captain, we are being scanned again. I extended and retracted my claws over and over again, and it felt like my body temperature had fallen by two degrees, until the Terrans answered again. Your explanation has been deemed acceptable. We do not take sides in your conflict, but we are currently in Terran space, and you are under our supervision. Any hostile ship will be asked to leave, or made to leave. At least they would not shoot at us, but were they crazy? We strongly advise you flee, Terran ship. Noted. 
Only moments later, a huge hyperspace window began to open, 3,000 clicks distance. The Terrans burned again, and only moments later, they were positioned between the window and our wrecked ship. Like an image of a doomsday, a huge ship emerged from the Blue Maelstrom, a Farron destroyer, five kilometers long and nearly as wide and half as high. Without a moment's notice, they began to fire at us, and all hell broke loose. Two thick beams of light were fired at us from the front of the destroyer, like lightning bolts of an angry god, too fast to dodge at this distance. The Darren ship took the full brunt of the lasers. I thought the whole ship would evaporate. But then the stars around us went blurry. The destroyer disappeared from the view. Then the stars became normal again, and the destroyer was gone. Everybody on the bridge was disoriented. The viewport AI quickly spun around to view, and there was a destroyer again. This time, it faced backwards, much closer than before. The destroyer was still firing bolts of death into the now empty space in front of it. Clearly, as confused as we were. Then the Terran ship burned into view again, accelerating at breakneck speed towards the destroyer. It left behind a trail of molten armor like a shooting star. It was rocked back twice despite forward acceleration as huge projectiles were fired from its giant railguns. The destroyer finally noticed the miraculous jump and began to turn around and recharge its main weapons. But the Terran ship jumped again like it was mocking the slow destroyer. A flash of blinding light and the ship appeared above the destroyer, only 25 clicks away. Thousands upon thousands of rockets emerged from the hull of the Terran ship like a swarm of angry fireflies. Too many, too close and too quick for the point defenses of the destroyer. A flash of light in the Terran ship was gone again, followed by many thousands more flashes as the nuclear warheads overwhelmed the shields of the destroyer. The viewport instantly went dark in order to protect our eyes and the senses. When we could see again, the top side of the destroyer had turned into a molten red hellscape. The destroyer began to spin out of control, clearly disabled. But then two more impacts rocked the huge wreckage. There was no sound in space, but I thought I could hear it. Dunk! Dunk! Two mighty punches rocked the destroyer. The war steel was punctured from back to front. Two shuttle-sized holes were punched through the entire length of the ship, and the explosion of matter ejected out the exit holes at the front, and shortly afterwards, also, out the back. Countless smaller explosions rocked all parts of the ship as the fusion reactors ran out of control. Then came another flash of light, and the Terran ship was back in front of us. Steaming, molten, and tattered, but still in one piece. Union ship Tana, be advised, we will now tow you to Proxima Centauri. It took me a moment to come back to my senses. My first officer was standing next to me, breathing heavily. Communications officer Garin looked at me with wide eyes. I gave him the signal to transmit. Whatever you say, Terran warship, we will comply. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1595. Think humans stop being predators. Watch their kids play. Written by XR171. I was eating the evening meal with several friends after my return from Earth or Terra, as it was often called. 
the humans were still somewhat new to the galactic stage, but were quickly making a name for themselves as one of the few species that started as a predator, but didn't seem to desire war with everyone, or really anyone for that matter. They freely admitted to the horrors they inflicted upon each other in the past, but proudly proclaimed that they had grown beyond it. So what did the humans eat? My friend Kazar asked. It would be easier to tell you what they don't eat, I answered. I've seen them eat plants and animals they knew were toxic. Some loved to eat plants that caused burning sensations. Some smoked plants that caused cell mutations. And most drink substances that harm their brains. But generally, they'll eat any plant or animal, though individual preference may vary wildly. So, uh, they evolved as predators, but they eat plants, even the toxic ones? Kazar's lifemate, Alzar, asked. Not exactly. They're quite the omnivore. I studied their evolution, and they've been a herbivore, a scavenger. And it was later that they started hunting, but yes, they love toxic plants. Some for their burning sensations, some for stimulants, and some for a type of cooling sensation. While on Terra, I was invited to what humans call a barbecue. A most interesting gathering. After studying their evolution, I can see how the barbecue was a ritual that has endured. It's not too alien from any of our group ingestion rituals. I explained. This elicited some strange looks from around the table, but soon everyone's eyes had the same message. Explain this. Consider us now. We are gathered here at this place that happens to be my favorite nutrient ingestion place to celebrate my return from terror. Humans tend to gather and celebrate many or any occasion by consuming nutrients together. The barbecue was held in my honor since I was departing soon. But looking back at human history when they started hunting, they didn't have speed or strength on their side. They had two things. Two things that don't seem that great. They can dissipate heat faster than any other species on their planet. Actually, more than any other known life form today. So, they would often chase down their prey until their muscles gave out. They could do this for a half of their day. Longer, as they often worked in teams. Then, they could carry it back to where they were dwelling. That alone gave them some initial success. What really gave them their next edge was their ability to throw things accurately, I stated. What did they throw? Rocks? asked Tenulth, my supervisor that suggested I take the assignment. Initially, yes, sir. But soon they learned how to use rocks to sharpen or make spears which they would throw. This allowed them to run less. But the basis of humanity's ascent was running and throwing. Next, they would drag their kill back so their family group could eat it. Later on, they harnessed fire which made this easier and safer. The table was quiet for a minute as they contemplated this. Us Ansarians involved by hiding from our world's predators. Eventually, we learned to make tools and fortifications to keep them at bay but we never really engaged them. Agriculture was our first major breakthrough, as was most other species in known space. 
Most predatory species learned to hunt and never gave it up, which is why most of them were behind a heavily enforced quarantine, but not humans. We were wary at first, having met ambush predators in our past, as well as current galactic past, but they seemed honest in the desire to join the great community. They were quickly integrated themselves as merchants, soldiers, engineers, and really every other role that you could imagine. I had to admit, it was odd during a standby period on my transit home to see humans offering themselves as pleasure companions. Well, I'm glad that they've given up on hunting and predation, Kazar stated. I paused considering my next statement. I don't think that they fully have. I think it's genetic for them. Take this barbecue. The food available was a very wide variety. Like us, many humans enjoy salads and they had a few of them available. The lettuce type was certainly my favorite, but they had also had one with potatoes, which are these amazing roots, I think. Also, several other salads, including something they called macaroni. But the main dish that the humans were there was for the wild animal. My host had recently terminated what he called a wild boar that was considered to be an invasive animal to his area. So he invited his family group, people that lived in close proximity to him, his co-workers, and myself. I was what he called the guest of honor. A lot of these people also brought their offspring. Ah, but so the adults still hunt. Did he chase down this wild boar? Asked Tenoth. No, he used a very primitive slug throw. I asked if his people still chase down the prey, and he said in some areas they do. But he accumulated too much age and mass to do so. He preferred to hide in a tree with his slug thrower. But what really convinced me that humans are still predators are their offspring. You see, they quickly organized a number of games and a lot of them didn't have familiarity with each other. The younger ones had the most simple games. They had chased each other around. When one was caught, they would simply start chasing another. Also, they had games that involved throwing things. They tended to prefer throwing spheres or oblique spheroids, but great emphasis was placed on accuracy in throwing and catching. When I asked my host about this, he said something about being joyful that the offspring were doing something to exert themselves rather than using electronic devices. When I asked further about the rules of these games, he seemed confused. He said, with Tag, one does not desire to be it, and can only remove this condition by being fast enough to contact someone else and proclaim that they are now it. He didn't claim to know what the rules of every throwing game was, but he was quite proud of the older offspring running what he called passes. Wait, so the offspring instinctively hunt each other? It seems if they're playing Tag, the best strategy would be to hide. Kazar stated. I realized that this would take a lot of time to explain, though I was pleased at more social meetings that would be needed to do this. Their offspring have a game for that. They called Hide and Seek. When I asked about how they transitioned to it from Tag, again, my host said, it Tag tends to turn into it when the first person tries to hide. So you see, 
They became such successful predators because their earliest recreation is a form of wargaming and the predator-slash-prey relationship. Again, the table was silent. I also noticed that some tables near us had ceased their conversation. I think we should keep them off our planet, a patron of another table said. This was met with murmurs of approval. While I was no great expert on humanity or terror, I did feel the need to defend my friends, so I stood to address those near me. Humanity can seem terrifying, but their history, both ancient and modern, is filled with countless examples of them risking everything and even terminating themselves to save not only each other, but other animals of their world. I would tremble in fear of having them as an enemy. But when I was there, I slept better, knowing them as friends. I was met with approval, but I felt humanity would be best if they were slowly introduced on my world. Many of them expressed a desire to visit, even though it is very tame compared to terror. My thoughts were interrupted as our meal was presented to us. Conversation at our table quickly went back to humans. My friends were speculating how they would survive, let alone thrive, on a world filled with other predators. I felt that it would be best to save the history of how they turned one of their greatest rival predators into what they call their best friend. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1596 Story number one. Why do death wilders rebuild what they destroy? Written by Random3x. Laika was only a fresh hatchling when the humans first arrived hovering in orbit over a homeworld. At first, the hive's response was fear and panic. What were these beings from another world here for? Laika especially remembers the voices on the vidnet crying. They were here to wipe out the entire race, and they would strike first. Even back then, Laika knew these voices were driven by fear. What only exacerbated the situation was the language barrier. Attempts to communicate between the species were mostly failures. The only message was a successful translation was mostly garbled, but Laika remembered her entire family watching as the queen read aloud what had been made known. Come! We mean harm! These few words only added fuel to the fire. Voices were screaming in terror. The warrior cast all declared that they should strike now before these humans could prepare their assault. Others tried to be voice of reason and stated that they should wait the full translation. It is unfortunate reality that voices of fear are far louder than voices of reason. It was for this reason that war was declared. Every hive mobilized its entire warrior cast. Like a along with the other juveniles alongside the non-military castes, were all ushered into the deepest depths of the hive's tunnels. It was here that they waited, and here the fear pheromones grew in density. All watched on screens as the orbital strike forces launched their attack. All felt their despair as they were all shot out for the sky as if they were naught but paper planes to the enemy's fire. It was then a new message arrived from the invaders. Please, fight. We want countless deaths. It was a clear declaration. The holy caste declared that it was a Shamgoroth, 
the end of days, like could only huddle in her little corner of the cabin, knowing her birth givers were likely amongst those who had been killed in the assault. It was then that the queens of the remaining hives formed an alliance and released the chemical foodstocks to enable all castes to become warriors. Such measures were only ever done in the most dire of straits. Only the juveniles would be left unchanged to allow a chance at a future. Days passed in the blink of an eye. The whole cavern shook with the ferocity of the combat above. Watching on the screens, Laika could see the human warrior cast fighting claw to claw with their own kind. Both were losing lives. Both were shedding blood. Laika could only wonder, though, was this really necessary? It was a month into the battle that one of the few remaining mind casts finally translated the messages. It was here all of the Val knew that they had committed a grave wrong. One that would have been hard to undo. Micah could remember the Ashen Queen reading the full message, the very same messages that had ignited the war. We come in peace. We mean you no harm. It was then the Queen read the second message, which such deep shame that all of the Vel felt it. Please, do not fight. We do not want countless deaths. It was here the queen announced that she would try and broker peace, though many of the few remaining felt such a thing was impossible. The humans seemed almost to adapt to warfare. Many hive cities were already rubble. Millions of lives were lost. And worst of all, the humans had also lost many of their own kind. It was the opinion that, like the Vel. The humans would not forgive the wrongful deaths and seek total annihilation for those responsible. Though, the queen decided to try rather than fade into the night as the one responsible for her race's destruction. The message was sent. The remaining warrior cast was withdrawn back to the last hive city. All present prepared for the last great assault. For fire and death to rain down from the sky as it had on all other cities before. But no such death came. The humans sent a new message. We accept your surrender. The queen read those words, and like puppets with their strings cut, all collapsed as the tension of the moment was finally gone. Cheers and prayers to the many-faced god went out that day. Nika was firmly among them. It was then their worries and fears began to pile right back up again. The humans would no doubt desire terms favorable to them. They would seek retribution. Nyga had heard from her uncle, a royal god, the queen was prepared to sacrifice her life to appease the humans. But the most surprising thing happened. Nothing. No retribution. No outrageous demands. The human's ambassador announced peace would be kept so long as the Val kept it. So ended that horrific chapter of Val history. What followed, though, was beyond the imagination of any sane being. The humans offered to aid them in rebuilding, in repairing what they had destroyed. It was common sense to let the defeated lick its wounds and rebuild. The humiliation and the scars are a reminder of the dominant one. But these humans were different, looking out at the city far more resplendent than any that had existed before it. Laika could see humans and Val walking side by side, 
The horrors of the past were just that. Nothing more than the past. Turning to look at the human ambassador, Micah felt compelled to ask. Human, it has always puzzled me why your race offered to help us when we wrongly attacked and killed your kind. The human seemed surprised by the sudden question. Then, with a practiced motion, he stroked his beard. Micah knew this to mean that he was in thought. Why did we help you rebuild despite the bloodshed? The human asked in return. Nikon nodded her head, mimicking a positive human response she had learnt. Well, uh, hmm, uh, okay, we humans have an old fable. You know what a fable is, right? Nikon nodded in response. Okay, the story is named The North Wind and the Sun. The story starts with Mr. Sun and Mr. Wind arguing over who is stronger. They argue and argue and argue, but they realize that they aren't getting anywhere. So they decide to hold the competition to see who is strongest. Was it glorious single combat? <laughs> no, Laika. You see, they noticed a human traveler with a coat. They decided whoever can get this traveler's coat off first is the strongest. So Mr. Wind blows with all his might. But the traveler just tightens up his coat and resists the force of the wind. Then, it's Mr. Sun's turn. Did Mr. Sun ignite the traveler with the rays of fire? No, Laika. But kind of close, if a bit morbid. No, Mr. Sun shines softly and makes the traveler warm. Warm enough that he takes off his coat willingly. Thus, Mr. Sun won. I still do not see the connection to why you aid us, Laika asked, tilting her head in confusion. The moral of the story is that you can win with kindness rather than force. We humans, by our nature, are empathetic. It's why we treat yesterday's enemies as today's friends. Because, with kindness and a little help, we can have a deeper friendship. Fascinating. Please tell me more about these fables and their meanings, Liker asked, leaning in eagerly. I'll give you my daughter's book on fables. I'm sure you will enjoy them. The human ambassador replied with a light chuckle. End of story. Story number two. How one plus one equals three. But humans are involved. Written by Slow AD 2584. Human Gilbert, I always meant to ask you about something. Do you mind? Uh, sure, alien. Mask away. But, by the way, why do you always call me Human Gilbert? No, oh, yes, sir. That is because crewmate Alien Gilbert and ship nascent AI Gilbert might get confused. So my question, are you deficient in your math? Uh, no. Uh, not really. Uh, I, I couldn't really be a damage control engineer if I was. Uh, uh, what makes you say that? Oh, please, now don't get offended. I am merely curious about the flare graffiti that you have added to your spacesuit. Your tether's harness, your breaker of all. It took me some time to adapt to your particular base 10 maths, but I am fairly certain that 1 plus 1 equals 3 is in fact an error, is it not? Ah, that. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's just a little human engineering joke, a bumper sticker, a meme, um, although I guess it, it works with horses and mules as well, uh, now that I think about it. Uh, hmm, interesting. 
But I do not understand. How can a being a human, or a horse, was it, make one plus one equal three? Uh, ego, my friend, pride. One human can do X amount of work, a set factor towards completion of a task. But if you add a second human, say, human child over there, well, now the facts factor is in fact tripled, not doubled. I, uh, do not understand. Team efforts to complete goal would barely marginalize combined effort. 1.8 factors, by my math. Not even double return. It is still makes no sense, human Gilbert. Ah, that's where ego comes in. Let's say it's me and human Chad over there, uh, having to pick up a ton of spilled slime nodule matrix co-processors, then spilled all over the cargo bay, and wriggle them all back into the container. Oh, by the unholy dark star, don't remind me. Yeah. Truly awful, you jerk. Anyways, if it was just me picking them all up, it would take three hours. But me and human Chad over there will finish in one hour. Yes, but why? I don't still don't see what this ego thing has to do with... Because, even though it is disgusting and awful, I'll be damned if human Chad over there is freaking picked up more than I did, and he's thinking the exact same thing about me. That sly sideways glance at the other guy's progress. Oh, and now it's suddenly a race. Same thing with horses, I've heard. Standing side by side, they compete for dominance or something. End result, one plus one equals pulls three times the work. Interesting, human Gilbert. Very fascinating. I'd heard that humans were horrifically wired in such a death world away that it would be a folly or doom to ever be on the wrong side of them. I'm beginning to perceive exactly why now. <laughs> yeah, uh, just imagine if one plus one plus one plus one got together to figure out how to ruin your army or empire. Now, just teasing. Uh, nice chat, boss. Alien control. Uh, ha happy to resolve the confusion. Thank you. Oh, and human Gilbert and human chat, please take the rest of the shift off with pay. I do truly apologize for the slime core incident. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1597 Witnessed, written by Garaki Arts Liaison Garak Moy hissed as the bridge shook violently from another impact. He couldn't help but feel that the light cruiser he was on, the HMAS Huntsman, should have left the battlefield long ago. But the old human captain refused to abandon the fight. Blasted human, we'll get annihilated if this continues. This was supposed to be a simple mission for him. The Toucan Star Tribe was the closest galactic race to the United Interstellar Nations, a loose confederation of hundreds of human polities. The warlords Garrick was subservient to had insisted that he learn more about human military doctrine for the good of the Tuco race, particularly space warfare. It's just a routine patrol around a newly developed human colony, they said. At most, you'll deal with the rowdy smugglers or a pirate fleet, they said. Then why, in the boiling marshals, is there a death cult raiding fleet here? Around him, the human command staff he was attached to gritted their teeth in frustration. The collateral human tongue barked out order after order. Put us in faster spin, I want damage spread out all over the entire hull. Particle beam has sliced through decks 5A to 8B. Our reactors are reaching their limit. Just a few more minutes, you apes. Now Sydney's halfway through her evacuation. Garrick sunk deeper into his chair as he rocked to and fro. The number of G's pressing on his body was unbearable, and the juice that the human said was supposed to counteract the effect felt more placebo than anything. Despite the struggle to keep himself conscious, 
he made sure to pay as much attention to the battle. On the system map that depicted the binary stars and the lone habitable archipelago world that alberted it were 19 colored dots. They were blue, signifying the human forces, while the remaining nine were death cult ships. Despite having more numbers, the defending site consisted of only three warships from the stellar Commonwealth of Australia, and the remainder were patrol ships for the retrofitted civilian vessels. They had more before the fight began. Eight minutes had passed since the first laser beam streaked through the black void, and since then, the humans had lost two patrol corvettes and a single frigate crippled. In comparison, the Death Cult had a frigate lost with all hands and even had a destroyer dead in space. That in and of itself was quite a heroic feat. The radiating fleets of those insane Zediots were infamous and lethal. They took anything and killed everything for some deranged ideology with regards to entropy and how life was a sin. The fact that these humans, a race new to the galactic scene, had put up such an even fight was simply a miraculous. Garrick even believed for a moment that he'd survive this day. That, of course, was until the second fleet emerged. Captain, we're detecting multiple new contacts, a number of troops, transports, and, uh... Garrick looked at the map and felt his spine chill at the largest dot, blaring a deep purple. The Tuco faced the human captain with a great sense of urgency and fear. Captain Alerki, that is a death cult battle cruiser. The battle is lost. We must flee with those that we have evacuated already. The human captain merely glanced in Garrick's direction before returning to the detailed scans of the new threat. Garrick grew irritated that his words fell on deaf ears and wished that he could stand from his chair if he wasn't glued to it with the high-G maneuvers the ship was made. Captain, we need to, with all due respect, liaison Garrick. The sailors of the Royal Australian Navy are not cowards. If we can buy one evacuation ship time to get out of the system, it is our duty to do so. This is suicidal. There is no cowardice in retreating from a losing battle. We still have a chance. The Tuco gawked incredulously at the human. The liaison looked around him and found the rest of the human command staff was still stoic in the face of death. Don't they firmly believe that they have a chance? Or are they just putting on a face? This level of bravery borders on a foolishness. Focus fire on those troop transports. They must not reach the planet. Huntsman rocked violently as a torpedo detonated a few hundred meters to the starboard. The red war lights flickered as the humans continued to put up a fight. In the far distance, the newly reinforced Death Cult fleet fought with renewed vigor, like demonic creatures from the abyss. They drew closer to medium-range combat and began firing kinetics and missiles. The unexplated battlecruiser that led the assault disgorged a myriad of ordnance like a crazed beast. The Huntsman was impacted yet again. This time, a stealth slug from a gauze cannon punctured the hull before exiting out the other end. Status! Electrical cascade, we lost power to our light lasers and our coil guns. Um, evasive maneuvers, just keep the bastards busy. I just received orders from battle group Empetus. That help is on the way. Hi, Captain. Garrick felt a bit of relief at that. It seemed reinforcements of their own were on the way. He just hoped that they wouldn't arrive at the sight of his floating, frozen corpse. The space battle continued in earnest, ships continuing to fall on both sides as the trades blows after blow. 
The space between them was alight with beams of light and trails of missiles and kinetics. The civilian vessels and patrol craft on the human side were quickly lost or crippled ever since the death cult battlecruiser had entered the scene. Bloody hell! We're just getting our asses kicked over here and shit! The defender's face grew dire as the rapid losses. It wasn't long before only the three RAN warships remained in the fight against six raiding ships. A voice was heard across the bridge coming from one of the human vessels. This is HMAS Redback. We're lost power to engines and you, Sydney, is pulling us into her orbit. We're knocked out of the fight. Copy that, Redback. Send your crew planetside and join the defense of the ground. Captain Alecki grunted in frustration and sweat trailed down his temple. Damn! I thought you'd stay a bit longer. How's the recluse? At that moment, one of the red dots of frigate vanished. Afterward, a voice came from the killer joyously spoke through the comms. <laughs> Scratch three. We're bleeding a tad, Alecki, but my destroyer still has teeth. Captain Talia, you beautiful woman! Garak looked at the telemetries of the recluse and saw how the female human captain had understated her damage. How this human warship keeps on fighting with such damage is unbelievable. They're like the humans themselves with their endurance and tenacity. Multiple holes were visible in the gunmetal hull of the human destroyer. Large areas were melted and fused as lasers scorched her plating. The stubborn vessel seemed unaffected as a gun fired at the enemy fleet. A rapid-fire kinetic projectile spewed out of a dozen rotating barrels, while the last of her torpedoes blew out of her silos. These bloody craps are a bunch of wimps, Alecky. Scratch fall. The captain of the huntsman chuckled. <laughs> you crazy bastard. Evacuation is almost complete. We should head to... Suddenly, the ship received the worst impact so far. The entire vessel shook and a groan as the huntsman received a critical hit. What happened? The Death Cult Battlecruiser, sir. We got hit by its main gun. Our engines got penetrated and we lost power on multiple decks, sir. We crippled, sir. The grave news was heartbreaking. Garrick felt his end was near. He wanted to kick and scream at his misfortune, but didn't have the energy to do so. He looked around and saw the cracks of the human expression. Most seemed in peace with their end, while a few shook in fear. Captain Ilecki let out a tired sigh before pulling out a cigar. The acrid stench that emanates from the stick tickled Garrick's nose. He'd never gotten used to its smell. The Tuco looked on as the remaining death cult vessels accelerated in a frenzy. Their losses demanded retribution, and they were surely out for their blunder. Before Garrick could decide whether he should join the defense against the boarding parties or end himself, the exuberant voice of Captain Talia echoed through the crackling speakers. Hey, Huntsman, you good? Captain Electi smirked upon hearing her voice. We're in a bit of a pickle. The Huntsman is dead in the water. Yeah, I can see that. Those death cult wankers are really angry from how fast they're going. It's fine if the recluse has this. Captain Alecki creased his brow at her words. Talia, what are you planning to do? My ship isn't doing too good. We have fires in multiple decks and our reactor is nearing critical. Our engines are bloody pristine, however. Captain Talia, Alecki spoke slowly, before nodding with a stony expression. It has been an honor, old friend. Ha! I'll reserve a seat for you on the other side. I'll see you then. The speakers went silent and Captain Alecki waved his hand, bringing down a large monitor. 
that showed visuals on the recluse. The destroyer was hurting badly. Even then, it never stopped firing. Its guns were visibly overheating, barrels going red. While her thrusters exploded into motion, the hunk of steel pushed forward like a knife through space, straight towards the nearing death cult battlecruiser. Captain Alecki barked out a final order to his crew. Empty everything we have! Keep that battlecruiser contained! Yes, sir. The huntsman, despite being crippled, diverted the last dregs of her energy reserves to launch her remaining missiles. The salver of ordnance flew past the recluse and towards the enemy fleet. Come on, recruits, give them hell! We opened your path to Valhalla! The human destroyer continued to receive hit after hit. At one point, a beam penetrated the main engine room and cut power to her thrusters. But it mattered little, as she already reached an insane velocity that couldn't be stopped. The battlecruiser realized its folly too late. Its design was made for a straight-line acceleration and had little auxiliary thrusters to maneuver. It continued to pelt the recluse in desperation. Garrick watched slack-jawed at the display. The sheer bravery that bordered on insanity was mind-boggling and utterly inspiring. Finally, as the recluse reached her final approach, the speakers and the breach crackled, and a voice boomed, Witness me! With eyes locked onto the visual feed, the crew of the huntsmen watched as the recluse easily broke through the battlecruiser's shield and sliced through her hull. The destroyer buried itself into the death cult vessel before her reactor finally blew. The blast covered an enormous expanse, and the beautiful light basked everything in the vicinity with a deadly glow, crippling a nearby frigate. It was magnificent. Witnessed, the crew of the Huntsman roared in celebration. Garrick watched as the humans continued to shout the word, pointing at the feed. A number brought their hands together in the shape of a V as tears formed in their eyes. Captain Halecki remained seated, continuing to smoke his cigar, but it was obvious that the human felt the same for these massive grin. It didn't take long for Garrick to join in the celebrations of sacrifice as he shouted the same words. The absurdity of what had occurred seemed to have rattled the last two death cult vessels. And a minute later, reinforcements from Battlecrew Empetus had arrived and finally scared off the bastards. The evacuation was successful, and the raiders repelled, though at a cost. Garrick remembered the event fondly, all those years ago. It was a life-changing moment that led him down a successful path in the Navy. The reptilian Tuco adjusted the collar on his captain's uniform and lit a cigar as he stared at the death cult dreadnought in front of him. His subordinates, both Tuco and human, looked towards their leader in anticipation. Captain Garrick pressed his finger on the comms set wide band for all to hear. This is Captain Garrick Moy of the battleship Wolfspider to all vessels of the Vengeance Fleet. Witness me! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1598. The Swarm, written by Bob Bands. We call them the Swarm because they are the only ones who have been able to resist us for so long. Most of the galaxy's civilizations fear us. 
Well, a small part of it bows and calls us the masters. Yet, that was before we first encountered the swarm. The very first encounter we had with them was an extremely primitive object, barely advanced enough to even be called a ship. Their nonsensical alien babbling meant little to us, as they had become our next target for subjugation. To show their species that they should give up, we slaughtered the entire crew and studied their computer banks. We gained nothing from it, as they had scrubbed it clean. We couldn't get their home world, nor any information about them. Only thing that we had were corpses and the blasted object. Time passed, and we thought that we'd never see another one of their vessels. Then we encountered them yet again. This time the ship looked advanced enough to be called a ship, and we reacted quickly in the hopes of gaining the location of their homeworld. They were all slaughtered, and their attempts at fighting back were pitiful. Yet, they held out long enough to blow up their own ship. Yet more time passed, and we encountered a third ship. This one was advanced enough to fire back at us when we tried to approach it for boarding. It took us by surprise, but our armor was strong enough to withstand the gravitational force of a black hole, and this ship was quickly subdued. Yet our initial boarders had problems. They were being pushed back until we sent reinforcements. The division was sent to assist, and they started to retake the ship until the swarm sent out what can only be described as an energy pole sent in every direction. It was strong enough to temporarily overwhelm our electronics, and that pulse was apparently all that they were waiting for. The ship detonated itself, taking a division of our forces with it. I could bore you with the details of every other encounter, but sufficient to say. After that encounter, we started to find their ships at almost everywhere, both primitive and advanced. Yet, it was one specific encounter that changed it all. The encounter started off the same as always. At this point, we had stopped bothering to even try board them, as they'd always detonate themselves. Yet the ship we encountered was advanced enough to actually damage our armor slightly. We quickly blasted it to atoms and were in the process of determining how much damage it had caused when suddenly another one of the ships appeared. We'd never encountered more than one ship during our encounter. The ship that left whatever they used to travel looked advanced, yet ancient, and we had to use more power than before to destroy it. Yet, the second we had destroyed that ship, another appeared from FTL, more advanced than the previous one and slightly younger. We kept destroying their ships during that encounter, yet for every ship we destroyed, another would quickly take its place. Eventually... They were appearing faster than we could destroy them, and at that point the ships that appeared looked almost as if they had just left dry dock. They were starting to drown out our fleet in numbers, primitive, yet rapidly becoming more and more advanced by every ship that appeared. At that point we retreated from the encounter and hoped that that would be the end of it. We were wrong. Ten years after that encounter, one of our colony worlds went dark. We sent an armada to investigate, the same one we had used to subjugate most of the Galactic Council. Only one ship returned from that group, heavily damaged, with their crews missing and the databanks containing only one message. Terra 
Avengers. We, no, I, stand there before the Galactic Council begging for help. They're slaughtering everything we send at them. Worlds are going dark every week. We can't fight against them. They're too strong, too powerful, and too many. We, we fear that they will exterminate us of the galaxy. Please! The Galactic Council seemed to converse with each other before a third one spoke for them as a whole. Your species will learn the lesson which you forced us to learn so long ago. There will be no help. From their eyes, we'll never know exactly, for sure, just what happened to our first exploration vessel. But given how hostile the enemy is to us, we can only assume that they destroyed it. We, I hope they died a quick death in that case. I still remember that day. Our FTL drive was so slow on our ships, yet fitting a drive on a hollowed-out torpedo containing a recording, and you'd have yourself a makeshift FTL courier system. Information could reach us literally hours after it launched from its origin. The exploration ship had a deck dedicated to storing thousands of these things, and they used them frequently every day. Whether it was messages to family members or officers asking for orders or solutions, they were always being sent in both directions. Yet one day, the ship stopped sending FTL torpedoes, and they didn't answer any torpedoes sent their way. Our second exploration vessel was still in the shipyard, yet we dedicated an entire civilization's efforts into rapidly completing it. We managed to complete it in a matter of two months and discovered just how fast we could work as a species when actually united. The second ship was named after some mythology. I think it was called Zeus or something. Either way, the crew had Navy personnel assigned to assist them, and the ship was outfitted with the state-of-the-art technology, including experimental technologies, and their departure was broadcast all over the entire planet. And so began the long journey towards the last known position of our lost ship. Zeus was equipped with an experimental communication system and had extreme delays between transmission and receiving. They could transmit their current position and it would be hours out of date when we got it. Yet the system was slightly faster than using courier torpedoes. The entire crew used this system from time to time and eventually we received their last transmission. Commencing FTL jump towards last known location of Pathfinder. Stand by for further information. We never received anything from Zeus after that message, and our entire homeworld became depressed. But we had lost two ships, hundreds of human lives just gone. At one point, someone suggested that perhaps the cosmos aren't as empty as we think they are. Perhaps there exists other life in the galaxy, and they're not friendly to us. Our planet became angry from the suggestion. We decided that we would advance our technology for ten years before we tried again. The third ship was named Prometheus. It was entirely staffed by Marine Division. It was equipped with our first space weaponry and every bit of advanced technology that we had at our disposal, including an experimental distress beacon, designed in such a way that we'd hear it no matter what. The launch of Prometheus marked the start of a new age, a new age of war. At first, we didn't know what to call it. Then Prometheus was silent, and we received the distress beacon's energy pulse. Overnight, our species as a whole wept for our losses as we came to terms with the fact 
that the galaxy wasn't empty. That we weren't alone, but those who shared the galaxy with us were hostile. A memorial was constructed within a month. Nothing big, barely half the size of the ISS. Yet, it existed when those who lost their loved ones could grieve there. A year went by, and we expanded our ship production capabilities. Where it once took a year to construct a ship, we can now have ten built within five months. Every ship we built was given the same order, pick a direction, and map out the extent of the enemy's border. Every one of those ships reported back valuable information before being destroyed. By the end of the first year since the loss of Prometheus, the memorial had been expanded to the size that matched the ISS. One day, someone made an addition to the memorial. We'll never find out who did it, as the memorial has no security within it. The addition was a simple pyramid to the very center of the memorial. It was a holographic projector, capable of projecting a hologram. In this case, it was a hologram of our galaxy. It also had three words floating above it. Terror, Avengers, always. It became our very motto. We had avenged those who lost their lives to this enemy. The second year went by more or less the same. Our production capabilities had increased to the point where we were producing small fleets every month. Yet for every ship that we sent out, they'd always perish. At this point, we realized that the enemy we faced was so advanced that they would withstand any technology we'd hoped could give us an edge. In the end, we took a page from the Soviets. If we couldn't destroy them through increasingly advanced technology, then we drowned them in numbers. Every planet within the solar system and within what little territory we had, all of it was designed to be used for the purpose of increasing our shipyard's capabilities. The fourth year marked a moving of the memorial. We moved it from our home system to a star system within our territory. A star system that was incapable of sustaining life. That star system was harvested, the planets being converted entirely into one lone construction. A Dyson Sphere. The final resting place of all those who died to the enemy. And a promised future for those who perished in the war. It was given a name. Cradle. That year also marked the advancement in nanotechnology. Nanites are now used to create our starships. The only limit was being how fast we can provide materials. The fifth year had two of our ships returning back from the front line, both carrying information that changed our view of the war. The first returned unscathed, which was an oddity in itself. Yet they carried information about new civilization that they had encountered. One that wasn't hostile. The second vessel looked like it had gone through hell, yet the info it carried made us repair it rather than scrapping it. The ship had managed to take a few pictures of the enemy forces before escaping to FTL. The pictures were grainy at best, but it gave us a rough estimate as to how many ships were going up against. It also gave us a face to the enemy, something that we can now point and say, These are the ones that killed your beloved. These are the ones who would see us exterminated, but worse. It gave us a conduit to focus the anger, the rage that had slowly been growing with every name added to the cradle. The sixth year started out with us finally establishing contact with our friendly neighbor. Advancements in technology had finally allowed us to understand them. 
and this story only further grew our hatred and rage for the enemy. These neighbors were forced to pay tribute to the very foe that we were fighting against. This foe was so powerful that it almost ruled the galaxy with an iron fist. For a brief period, our species considered surrendering. We couldn't fight against an entire galaxy. Yet those words from Cradle seemed to contain a deeper wisdom than we had previously realized. Terror. Avengers. Always. If the galaxy wasn't strong enough to fight back against the enemy, then it would fall to humanity. Terror as a whole to fight for the galaxy's freedom. We drown the galaxy in numbers and then push the enemy to extinct. No. We teach them the same lesson we teach the galaxy that all deserve freedom and equality. For something was clearly wrong with our enemy if they deemed themselves higher than others. We would never drive another sapient species to extinction just for believing in the wrong things. And so, the children of terror were set to work. They suffered tremendous losses, yet they kept pushing. And eventually, the galaxy as a whole finally tasted freedom yet again after such a long time. The cradle was expanded yet again and now held not just the names of the humans who lost their lives in the war, it also included those who perished fighting in the war, including the names of those who once considered a great enemy. Terra avenges always. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1599. Story number one. No, but yes. Written by Echoing Cascade. The alarms had stopped blaring as a few minutes ago, and Sally was listening to her captain in the engine room. This ship, the Silver Queen, was currently in dry docks of a repair station for maintenance. Okay, say that again in a way that doesn't sound stupid. The diminutive woman was holding a large wrench in one hand and pointing at menacingly at her captain. Captain Su'u of the morning light, an iron like the rest of the crew, began explaining the situation again. We were boarded by my Soren pirates a few minutes ago. Yes, I heard the alarms. We don't have the numbers or weapons to face them. Sally nodded. So I challenged the pirates to a contest of champions. Makes sense. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain. And I told them that you would fight. Okay. Right there. Uh, stupid. The captain was looking worried now. Not that he'd looked all that relaxed to begin with. Why not send Ryle or Bright Knight? He's the chief of security. She pointed at Iron, who blocked away, pretending that he hadn't heard that. Well, you're a human warrior, and as such should have no problem defeating a Mysoran pirate in single combat. Sally looked at the Iron like he had just told her that Pi was exactly three. A warrior? The hell have you heard that idea? I'm an engineer. She noticed the wrench in her hand, put it down, and crossed her arms. It was the captain's turn to be surprised. But you train every day in the cargo hold, the ritual combat clothes. Sally's left eye began to twitch. Because my muscles would atrophy if I didn't exercise them in a high gravity, and the cargo hold is the only place with an adjustable gravity. Everything else is set to standard, and it's freaking yoga outfit, not ritual combat clothes. 
the chief of security rallied his captain's aide, who was by now looking rather crestfallen. You have a large blade in your room. It's a conversation piece. You talk about it all the time whenever anyone visits you. Sally threw her hands in the air. It's a great conversation piece. Sally picked up the wrench again. All right, how much time we got left? A few more minutes, may maybe less. Sally sighed. She had an idea. Not a great one, but it would have to do. Tell them that I'll fight their champion in the cargo hold. As everyone began to leave, she stopped one of the fellow engineers. Not you, Barsa of the high winds. I have a job for you. Sally had donned her yoga outfit and held the scimitar in her right hand and was standing in front of a large Mysorean pirate equipped with punch daggers. He was bipedal, reptilian, red, and very, very angry. She walked a few paces back and began to limber up, and the Mysorean did the same. All right, remember what my brother told me when he gave me the blade. She closed her eyes to better relive the memory. You're an old FTL engineer assigned to space. If you ever need to use this as anything other than a wall decoration, someone fracked up. They had both laughed at the time. She opened her eyes and glared daggers at her captain and then quickly closed them again. A sword or saber in this case is not an axe. You don't need to chop with it. The follow-through has how you inflict deep cuts with it. She opened her eyes. Gods, I hope I don't have to put that to practice. The fight began as both opponents lunged at each other. Veer's clash of steel quickly followed. Sparks flew, and every other swing of their blades drew blood. At least... That's what the onlookers had expected. In reality, the second the fight had started, Sally turned her back to the opponent and ran. Everyone was stunned, but eventually the pirate champion gave chase. By the time they had finished their second lap of the spacious cargo hold, mocking and catcalling had begun. Sally didn't care. She had a plan and was confident in her speed and stamina. Any moment now. The change took everyone by surprise. Just how gradual increase of temperature goes unnoticed until you get burned. No one felt the increase in gravity, until it was crippling for all those present. All those present, except Sally, that is. She approached the Mysoran champion slowly. She wasn't at all tired, but the gravity was rough even for her. I'm sorry. I know this isn't very honorable, but I kind of like living. And my captain is a moron. She disarmed the pirate before restoring gravity to galactic standard. It took a while, but the repair station security eventually came to pick up the pirates. Wonderful! I knew that you could do it! Rally raised a blade and put the tip under the captain's chin. Everyone out! Most of the crew was confused and didn't know what to do. Those who had been in engineering, however, knew the score and left without a second thought. I said leave! Everyone was going to ask why Sally even cut them off, metaphorically. I don't want any witnesses. An ice in her voice could have kept meat fresh for a week, so everyone still there quickly left the room. Let's not do anything hasty here. I get a pay increase, an extra week of vacation, and a cat. Okay, for the first two. But a cat? Hell no. Just kill me now. Sally raised the scimitar above her head. 
Your funeral, any last words? Fine, fine, I'll get you a freaking cat. Sally put her saber down, and the captain breathed out. He started to leave the room when Sally grabbed his wrist. I want art in the writing. It took months to get the permits, but Sir Meow's lot collector the third eventually became the newest member of the Silver Queen's crew, and Sally Scimitar had a new story attached to it. One she loves to share with anyone who asks about the blade displayed in the engine room. End of story. Story number two. Human Rights Charter, written by Brew Fuka. Galactic Council Museum. Exhibition about the Akaya race. We didn't know that. When we first discovered humans, they were waging war with each other for possession of some death world. We analyzed their tactics and found that they refrained from attacking civilian targets. And if by mistake civilian targets are hit, both sides cease hostilities to give civilians a chance to flee and get help. Then after the war, they left the colonies alone, mostly just changing the faction that owns the planet. We calculated by hitting the civilian targets, we could gain some developed human colonies and make them surrender. If the worst happens, we would only lose some fleets that could be replaced by our colonies. Then we attacked Proxima 3. The human fleet was powerful, but when they saw what we did to the world below, they handed over the colony, and only asked to evacuate the survivors. We responded with bioweapons and killed the rest, just to send a message. Seven billion humans in total. The next target was Sarayan 7, three fully developed human colonies. When our ships finished the jump, we didn't find any resistance, not even a single human ship. We believed that the humans had given us the colony without a fight in order to preserve the lives of the colonists. As soon as we re-established Tachyon communications with our home fleet, we received a message asking all fleets to return. We were under attack. As our jump engines were still charging, we waited with great horror as our colonies were broadcasting distress calls. Human fleets were destroying our colonies one after the other. But not just the colonies, they were destroying entire planets, leaving nothing behind. They destroyed all the colonies we had, leaving only our home planet. We received a communication from our government telling us to surrender to the nearest human fleet or colony. As we are still close to Orion 7, we surrendered there. We were tried and sentenced to death for crimes against humanity. We pled our case, asked for forgiveness. But our appeals were in vain, because, as we now know, they call it the Human Rights Charter for a reason. Diary of Fleet Admiral Verton of the Akaya Race Note in the exhibit, the Akaya Race was banned by humans from developing interstellar travel technology and kept in an industrial age being used to produce sewer pipes and fittings for the rest of the galaxy's races. As all Proxima 3 colony once did, the Human Rights Charter only applies to members of the human race, as the Akaya discovered. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1600. Story number one. Newton's a Deadly Bastard. Written by Adioek. My human counselor, Frederick, sighed. Humans have been a part of the Federation for decades now. 
since the rogue servitors attacked the Sol system. The great battle for Terra lasted nearly four weeks. Heroed ships used magnetically operated cannons, legally distinct from the MAC from an old video game. The Microsoft Sony Megacorp demanded the human government to change the name of the weapon system. Why was this an issue? Well, a poor Gik trader ship was destroyed by a battleship's MOC round impacting it. The Council, specifically the Gik Counselor, accused human military of destroying the ship by purposely shooting it. The Gik Counselor, named Eunuch, was raging. Her reptilian skin, bright red, had shifted from a lovely violet color it previously had. I want the commander of the Terran vessel, Captain Karinko, arrested, tried, punished. He'd killed twenty Gik traders. Frederick slammed the desk with the palm of his hand. This made her go quiet as he stood up. Counselor Eunuch, for the fifth time, Captain Karinko retired forty years ago. Why does the human naval registry list him as the commander of the ship named the Mr. Gek forensics teams found the ship name written on the remnant of the shell? Eunuch growled, her finned fingers slapping the table in return. Because the ship was destroyed with most of the crew back during the Servitor War, Frederick responded in frustration. How can a destroyed ship fire its weapons then? Eunuch questioned. She crossed her arms over her chest as was wet collar around her neck and gills bubbled from clear exhalation. Do you know how far away from Sol the trader was? Frederick looked down at the rest of the counselors. One spoke with a raised hand. About uh, twenty light years, they said, before meekly lowering the hand again. What does that have to do with it? Munich demanded. Her skin was at least slowly turning purplish now that she did calm down a bit. Forty years ago, MOC rounds were fired at half the speed of light. Also, this ship fired that round 40 years ago. You can even examine the round compared to the modern MOC slug. Entirely different materials these days, Frederick explained as he sat back down. How does the captain know that the kick trader would even be there then? The amount of variables does the human navy have an artificial intelligence that can predict that far? Beauty cast, almost accusingly. AI above certain levels was outlawed across the entire galaxy after the servitor walls. No counselor, back then, humanity still hadn't put self-destruction packages inside the slugs. So MOC round from 40 years ago will just keep flying in space until it impacts something. Redrick continued to explain, before ending with a shrug. That trade ship is literally the most unlucky ship and crew in the entire universe. You humans just fire shells all over the place without considering what's beyond them. A different counselor suddenly shouted out. Within moments, the council was all yelling at Frederick, but he simply lifted a hand, making them quiet down. You all use plasma, missiles, and lasers. Remind how effective they are against the armor on the servitor ships, Redrick said. Now he was the frustrated one. You all sacrifice ships in fecking close quarter fights with bigger, more armored, and better armed vessels. Redrick continued on. When they invaded our sector, we fired a single planet site MOC round and destroyed one of their dreadnoughts. We lost 15 ships over the entire war, while you lost 15 ships to kill one ship. 
So remember that before questioning our weapons, Bedrick said as he pressed the button to call for the end of the meeting. Most of the other counselors immediately pressed theirs too, but Eunuch did not. Even so, we demand someone... She was cut off by Frederick. We will send a credit payment to all the families of the lost crew members, as well as a payment to the trading company. The Admiral of the Human Fleet will send an apology to the government on live broadcast. Push the button, eunuch, Redrick said in a harsh tone as he crossed his arms this time. With a gruff sound, Gick pressed the button and the counselors departed, though Frederick left with a final remark. Newton is the deadliest bastard in space. End of story. Story number two. First contact with fire. Written by Speedhump23. Report from Ambassador Trulf with the first contact with humans. We discovered the humans after one crew fast courier ship had dropped into their system for refueling off of their star and noticed the satellites around the sun. The courier realized first contact superseded her mission and moved in to make initial contact. The courier had messaged the humans about the impeding visit to say hi, and the courier had received their response. As is normal practice, the courier said that we would shortly send a diplomatic ship to meet them to introduce them to the Galactic Federation and take the opportunity for a look at their technology. As hundreds of revolutions have shown, we can learn new things from all races we meet, but this race, they scared myself and my contact team. The first face-to-face -face contact took place in space, not orbiting the third planet, their home, nor the fourth planet, their major colony, but out near the asteroid belt beyond the fourth. As per tradition, we had selected a first contact species who could breathe the same gases, and who looked similar enough to not scare them too much. Ha! <laughs> scared them. Our contact ship arrived at the asteroid belt. We selected a single ship to be there. As is normal, we sent our most advanced first contact ship. My crew and I had ridden the void for two weeks to get to the system, and some had hoped to be able to stretch their legs on a planet. Or maybe even a moon. The transfer tube was sent from our ship to their docking hatch, and once a firm lock was established, myself and my aide drifted across the hatch and politely waited for the humans to let us in. While we waited, we looked at their ship. Surprisingly, it was rather cleaner than we had expected. The outside was smooth, with no extra components or machines stuck to the hull to save space inside, almost as if it had been designed for atmospheric entry, or, as my pilot suggested, to look nice. Based on our own designs, this ship must have only had space for a single crew member, maybe two at the most. The next surprise was with a hatch opened inwards, a ship this size which had space for an airlock hatch to open inwards instead of outwards, or even slide into the hull. This was normally only seen in the largest colony ships, and only for the main hatch. This ship was too small for that. It must have been only a few hundred meters long, and at least half that wide. The airlock was also a surprise. There was space for both of us to fit in at the same time. It had taken us two cycles to leave our ship. My aide first, then me. Our airlock was too small for both of us to fit in at the same time. 
My tentacle aid had entered first and had looked through the opposite door's window. I saw the two humans waiting for us. She saw corridors. Once the suit had agreed that their air was breathable and there were no pathogens present, we took off our suits and faced the door. As it opened, I started to say my prepared speech. When the taller of the two humans smiled and said, Hold on, wait till we get you to the ambassador. At the time, I thought these humans must be mad, fitting three people into the ship the small. Oh, how wrong we were. I expected the airlock to open straight to the crew area, or maybe the engine room, but Nimi, my technical aide, was correct. There was an actual corridor. Searching back to the Gull Common, I suggested the corridors might be to show off their skills or try to awe visiting spaces. It could not be real. And I thought this as we walked down the corridors. I swear, it was about 50 steps in half G, and we saw at least two other corridors branching off halfway. By the time we got to the door we were walking to, Nimi was almost giggling in delight. She had realized what this meant about 10 meters before I did. The giggling was a flight or fight response. She could do neither. Her brain started giggling to try and deal with what she was seeing. The human escorts looked at my aide and asked me if she was okay. I apologized and said that this was her first meeting with the first contact race, and it was a bit much for her. I was already thinking of suggesting that we stop sending aides like Nimi on a mission like this. Diplomatic staff, yes, but technical crew? They were not trained for this. Then we stopped at the door. Then the door opened. The room, yes, it was a room, had tables, chairs, and even a bed folded up against a wall. The viewport seemed to be showing actual space through the transparent plastic. The ambassador was standing in the middle of the room looking at me. It was at this point I would normally have said that the prepared greeting etc. and moved on to the invitation for the human race to apply to join the Gulfhead. But my brain stopped working for a moment while it tried to work out what it was seeing and feeding. It was a warm in this room, actual heat. At this point I realized I had been warm since exiting the airlock. I was so unused to the warmth beyond the bare minimum allowed to keep us alive that my brain had taken a few minutes to process the feeling. The second thing my brain was having trouble with was the sight of a naked fire in the cabin of the ship in deep space. I almost panicked and looked for something to smother the flames with when I realized the flames were deliberate. They were in a fireplace. Human ships have fire on them. They have enough oxygen to waste on fire and can handle the waste heat. The ambassador later told me that he liked an open fire, and it did help with the chill in the air. Processing all of this, Nemi took his point to mention something else I was having trouble with. They have actual space in their ships, which we since learned have similar capabilities to ours. Their jump drives are maybe not as efficient, and they did not have our star maps, but their ships are eons ahead of ours in either aspects of their design. I looked back at the ambassador. Greetings from the Galactic Federation. I think we have a lot to learn from you. Uh, please, um, be our friends. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1601. Mystical Human Senses, written by Marilyn of Many. Getting woken up by a face full of sunlight was something that I had expected to leave behind. 
when I boarded a ship for deep space, especially since the ship in question was crewed entirely by tunnelers, the eyeless species that gets by on sonar. They hadn't made the ship, but they had customized it, and then included covering all the big windows with armor. Much did the disappointment of the human female who joined them, but it turned out they hadn't covered the smallest windows. As I blinked and squinted up at the wall that was pouring floodlight brilliance into my room, I discovered that the circle I had taken for simply part of the wall was clear. Probably foot-thick plastic of transparent aluminium or some alien material made from a space bee honey. Doesn't matter. It was letting in far too much light for whatever o'clock it was, and that made it part of the conspiracy. The ship seemed designed to prevent me from sleeping for a full cycle, no matter what I did. On my first night, I'd found that the original owners had left their morning alarm set to stupid early. The lights blinked on at the butt crack of dawn and refused to turn off. I'd asked other crewmates about it and been soundly laughed at. How could they know if something keyed up to my weird human senses was set in their own rooms? I left it at that. Instead, digging up a translator module for the language of the hardskins who'd made the ship, so that I could figure out the control panel's advanced settings. There'd been a bookshelf installed in front of the thing. On my second night of the ship, I'd woken to the wee hours to discover that the innocuous tube over the door glowed a worrisome, flickering orange during warp jumps. I'd turned my bed to face the opposite wall, which is what led to the current, irritating blast of morning sun. I covered my face with blankets, but no luck. The damage was done. With a long, suffering sigh, I threw off the blankets and stared at the ceiling. A spot of graffiti that I hadn't seen before caught my eye. My communicator was enriched. I keyed on the translator function and focused it on the alien text. Would it be a warning about the light timer? Maintenance tips on some quirk of the system? No, it would not. The translator displayed, Ha ha, you can't see this. I grinned. That almost made up for the rude awakening. I sat up for fine proper clothing. As I climbed into my favorite jumpsuit with many pockets, the light started to fade. I blinked. No, the light was definitely fading. I zipped the suit up and stepped onto the bed, peering out the porthole. I expected to see a local sun eclipsed by an asteroid or a moon, or see signs that the ship was changing course. But the pattern of stars was stationary, and there was no sunset in view. There was, however, the remains of a distant explosion. I saw the flaming gases spreading out and beginning to be quenched, while the traffic jam of shrapnel flickered in the reflected light. It was all so far away that I climbed down to pour through my duffel bag in search of my telescope. Suitably armed, I hopped back up for a better look. That was the most definitely an explosion or a camouflaged asteroid base unless I missed my guess the kind that stored fuel and munitions for the ongoing battle against the raiders. Fuel plus oxygenated air combined to make a showy fireball, and while most of the chunks had been launched away for parts unknown, some had collided with the nearby space debris and stayed within easy viewing range. They all had a glow of alien tech on the broken side. 
Something flickered past my focus range, and I pulled the telescope away before looking back. It was a spacecraft, painted black and probably invisible when it wasn't backlit by fire. A pretty distinct shape, though. One long spike surrounded by a ring of smaller ones connected at the base, like a splash of water turned to icicles. Like one of the enemy raiding ships. I scrambled off my bed and out the door, only pausing to grab a forehead light in case more of the pin left on for years illumination needed repair. It was good that I did. The hallway panels were intact, but the phosphorescent moss in the one long stretch was finally being cleaned away. I kept my exclamations of annoyance to myself as I jogged past a pair of workers. Also, my unflattering opinion of the species' appearance. Ever seen a naked mole rat? Then you're halfway there. These guys were a little more civilized. They wear clothes and trim their gnawing teeth and all that good stuff. They also have skin patterned and unpredictable calico splotches, which I'm 100% certain they are unaware of. These two were aware of me. They regarded me steadily as I approached, and my verbal, hi there, they turned back to work. Tunnelers greeted each other with double blasts of sonar instead of a wave and a smile. Saying something aloud was the best that I could do. I sighed at the loss of that oh-so-helpful moss and its pale green glow, but put it for my mind. Around the next corner was a medical center, home of the best lighting on the whole ship, and also the closest thing to a friend that I'd made in the last couple days. Eldie Herent, the lead medic, had agreed to let me hang out and read in the corner after I proved helpful in diagnosing Gamdalurian spear nose bite. The poor fellow's symptoms were the same as a handful of other ailments, except for the distinctive rash, which neither he nor Lildy could see. There were no patients in front office now, just Lildy organizing medical supplies. Her back was to the door. She jumped at my, hey Lildy. Robin, she said, you are so quiet, maybe you could hum in place of a soda? I think that would annoy anybody, including me, I said, slightly out of breath. Maybe, she admitted, setting down an armload of jars. Uh, are you here with m m m more medical insights? No, I said, and then the jars caught my, but half of those have gone bad. Are you sure? Yeah, pretty sure. It's a mold pattern if I've ever seen one. You may want to check all of them, but that's beside the point. There's at least one radar ship close by, and it blew up something technological. I need you to get me to the captain. The security guys won't listen to me alone. Lildy asked for details, and I gave them, talking quickly and making more of few wild gestures. She probably caught all of them. If previous interactions were any judge, she was probably sonic mapping me continually. Got to keep track of those spindly human limbs and the tendency to move around. When I'd finished convincing her that my mysterious sense of eyesight over smell had detected a hostile ship of a sort that would be invisible, unsentable, to the folks on the bridge, and which had just destroyed something far enough away that the shrapnel hadn't reached us yet. Then she was all set to help me convince the captain. If we were next on the target list, the raiding ship would know that only tunnelers patrolled this region They'd be counting on the visible explosion to be ignored. They might have allies arrowing towards us now. 
hard on the heels of the shrapnel. If the captain had been a different sort, he might have already been using the advanced detection systems that the ship came with. The hardskins had included a translator for visual to sonar, but I'd heard more than one crew member complain about the grating of the sound and the affront to the tunnel ego, and the fact that it really wasn't necessary when the auto-navigation wasn't exceptional for their planet-to-planet hops. Surely the radar scanning the path in front of them was enough. There was a tunnel and motto to the effect of Dig forward and don't worry about the rest of the soil. That was fine and dandy for social metaphors and relationship drama, but it was about to get us blasted to space dust. We need our shielding up fast, Lildy said as she ushered me out of the doorway and pulled a membrane from the wall to shut it. This looked like a transparent eyelid, just as gross as you would think. She pressed the nanotech control panel to lock the door, and her hand sank past the wrist before withdrawing cleanly. Also, pretty gross. Can you detect oncoming ships? She asked me. I grimaced as I followed the brisk pace, she said. Maybe, uh, if they happen to fly in front of that fire, or the sun, or I might be able to spot their shadows passing over stars, but I'll have to be looking in the right place. Lildy waved away. The fact that you know the layout of the enemy Lancer, despite not having boarded one or touched a model, should be enough to make the captain listen. He can activate the detection systems of the hard skins. We have both the technology and the technicians. She made a rude noise. Just not the patience. But you did not hear that from me. Uh, oh no, I'm right there with you. My first and only meeting with the captain had started with the discovery that the lights on the bridge were all dead except for one flickering exit light. The captain had had little patience for his new human with the extra senses shuffling forward blindly. My explanation never made it out of the starting gate, and the conversation went downhill from there. This time would be different. I had a senior officer vouching for me, and I had valuable information. I also had a strong feeling that Lildy wasn't leading me towards the bridge. Where are we going? I asked. To the captain's home space, she said. He won't be awake yet. I'm only up because I had an urgent case. Lildy shook her head as she hurried along. It was nothing, but I am glad that I was there when you arrived. Me too, I agreed. Then I smiled broadly, and I get to wake up the captain. Wouldn't that be nice? It's definitely his turn. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1602. Story number one. Broken, written by Dariah Leaf. The transport ramp descends, and for the first time in seven cycles, the breeze of the Imperial homeworld muffles my fur. I am home. I make my way through the usual bureaucratic trappings and security checks, getting some odd looks here and there when I insist on keeping my sidearm. But these little pinpricks do not face me. I've had worse. Lance Commander Herder, sir, a moment. A voice of the scribe stops me in my tracks and I turn to face her. Her furred form is smooth and well-groomed. Neat, even. I'd forgotten the sight of such carefully tended fur. For a moment I want to run my claws through it, but the moment passes with her next words. Lance Commander Herder, might I get a few words from you on the state of the conflict with the Clawless Ones? 
I sigh, and the sigh gets taken as consent, so the scribe continues. My eyes wander away from her groomed form to check my surroundings before I catch myself and refocus on her words. Ever since the clawless ones have joined the skittering cowards, the influx of wounded to the Imperial home has increased tenfold. But none of the returning veterans are willing to explain anything about their experiences. Could you shed some light on this? I really do not wish to have this conversation right now, but my eyes track a spot over her shoulder, and I see another pair of veterans play a game of rods and fountains behind her. The older of the pair, missing a hind leg from the thigh down, while his younger comrade is missing his left eye, ear, and part of his muscle. The rictus grin that this injury gives the younger veteran reminds me of another soldier I once saw. Leave me, Commander. Save yourself. I'm done for. There's in the trees, behind every rock. They're everywhere. Save yourself. My thoughts snapped back to the scribe and gave a little growling laugh. <laughs> you wish to know of the war with the humans? I see the satisfaction that she gets uncomfortable with me calling it a war. The Imperial High Command was decreed that a war can only be between peers, between equals. The conflict against the Federation and the human allies cannot be a war, for the act would imply that they are equals to the Great Empire. Fools! I press on before she can interrupt me. The war can only end with the complete destruction of the Empire or the humans. They will not stop. We angered them. After the initial naval engagements and the defeats the Navy suffered, we changed to match them and we pushed them back. The scribe taps away at her electronic scroll and listens intently as I go on. We pushed into some of their frontier areas and took some colonies, burning several others along the way. This was a mistake. Her eyes snap up as I say this and her head tilts in confusion. If we pushed them back and took their worlds, how can that be a mistake? I bristle my fur in a mild rebuke. She doesn't get it. Taking a human world is easy if planned well. Holding it is... It's the hard part. The skit is the crabs, as the humans call them when conquered, comply with the natural order of the universe. They submit to the stronger. I sigh sadly. Humans, uh, don't follow those rules. My words trail off and the silence prompts the scribe to make a specific question. One that snaps my gaze up to her eyes, but throws my gaze far beyond her. You fought in the occupation of Halden Five, yes? So you know how the clawless ones fight on the ground, as you face them in the underground cities of that world, yes? They're in the walls! They're in the white-spored walls! Retreat! Retreat! They're in the walls! I find my voice and suppress the urge to growl and snarl at her. My claws painfully push into my palm as I ball at fist. Yes, I was in the tunnel, sir. Part of me is still there. Her eyes snapped to my left and how the sleeve dangles uselessly in the spring breeze. We took the planet's surface within a day. Then we moved into the underground domes. They let us walk right in. Fools we were. They waited till we got an axe in our patrols, till we believed their submission was genuine. Then they broke us. Broke you? How? Her words haven't edged on them. I know I'm skirting the rules of proprietary now. A warrior has standards to uphold. To the nethers, 
with the standards. Yes, they broke us. You call them clawless ones or furless, but they are the humans. The insane, the mighty, the breakers of minds, the hunters of souls. To face humans in battle is to face fear itself. And then realizing that you are found wanting. I growl out my words defiantly and see her shrink back. Want to know how to spot a true veteran of the war against humans? I can show you how. How? Her words sound small as she shrinks back, and I realize I've reared up to my full height. The chest plate that is part of my partial uniform glinting in the red sun of the imperial home and reflecting into her eyes. I raise my remaining claw and ball it. Forgive me, my brethren, I silently whisper while looking at the veterans near the fountain. Some others I can now see walking around the square behind them. My thoughts circle back to what I was going to prove and I look down at the scribe. The humans have a custom they perform before certain battles. This is what most of our warriors hear before the end comes, by way of searing plasma from the shadows, screaming metal from the sky, sharpened stakes in the ground, all the insidious, silent kiss of a knife in the dark. My fist thumbs up my armor once, twice, and then I open my paw to change the sound. I repeated it again and again. Thump, thump, slap. I see my commanding officer's head explode from the shot out of the dark. Thump, thump, slap. The medic rushing up to cauterize the wound where my arm used to be crashes down at my feet with her legs missing below the knee. Thump, thump, slap. I see my aide being dragged into the shadows by a human grapple gun. He screams of pain echoing around our camp for torturous hours on end. Every team that tried to rescue him cut down by sniper fire. In the end, I called down artillery on his beacon to finally end his suffering. But it didn't stop the humans. Thump, thump, slap. Every night it sounded, a patrol goes out, and then out of the dark, thump, thump, slap. The translator screams about how they would stone us, and stone us they did. Our minds broke before our armor did. My mind snaps back to reality, and I stop my fist thumping into my chest plate. The scribe isn't looking at me. Her eyes are locked on the veterans at the fountain. The older one is in the fountain now, taking cover behind the room, eyes scanning for a non-existent tree line. The younger one is sitting on the ground in the shadow nearby, paw cradling his knees as he rocks back and forth. Further back, other veterans glare up at me, eyes wild with fear and recognition. We are broken. We survived the humans in battle, but it is not a victory. The living envy the dead, for they are done with battle. We are broken. My eyes track upwards towards the royal palaces, and they narrow as I do. We are broken. And for what? The other veterans track my gaze and a shiver goes through all of our furs. Maybe it is time for something else to break. End of story. Story number two. Big Iron, written by Whiskey Lullaby. It was supposed to be a training exercise. A bunch of cadets familiarizing themselves with flying actual ships 
throwing up a few asteroids and junk heaps to learn the weapon systems better. Until the Kolethi feet warped into view, Commander Briggs, one of the less than dozen veteran officers and the instructor of the course began ordering a full retreat and attempted to contact local defense forces. He's practiced calm, hiding the flurry of emotions boiling in his gut. A full Kolethi war fleet, this deep into human space. How? Briggs ordered his larger, more armored craft forward, as well as a few of the better armed cadet craft to form a skirmish line, using their outdated kinetics and lasers to outrange the Kolethi's more dangerous, mature-to-range plasma bolts as they let many of the smaller, more vulnerable craft escape. Then it happened. A stray Kalethi missile slammed into the TUN Big Iron outmoded cruiser-class vessel. Six of the twelve sections were venting Atmo, and the reactor was badly damaged. Briggs's heart leapt into his throat as he keyed this command line. Get at Robbins, eject your core and use auxiliary power to get into towing range before your reactor goes critical, he commanded, sweat beading on his brow as he awaited the reply, silently cursing the absolute ancient comms that they were using. The massive distance between the skirmishing ships often causing delays of up to 20 seconds, not to mention encrypting and decrypting. Time seemed to slow as he received a reply. Negative, sir. We are currently riding one of the biggest guns in the universe, and it's pointed right at their dreadnought. Invitum et mortem, we are terra. Briggs's eyes widened. But before he could key the console again, he watched in horror as the big iron spooled its jump drive, the overloaded reactor sending massive coronas of arcing plasma around the ship and providing far more power than it should. Space seemed to warp around the dying cruiser before, with an almost audible pop despite the lack of atmosphere. It disappeared, only to reappear in a violent shower of sparks and metal plowing at impossible speeds through the hull of almost planetoid-sized Kaleti Dreadnought. A bright, vaporizing flash as its own reactor went, and half the enemy fleet was gone. The aliens retreated as more human ships came into view, dozens of voices filling Briggs's comm channel as he stared at the hole in his console where the big science status was displayed. This is Commander Briggs. Enemy threat neutralized. Crew of the TUN Big Iron recommended for highest honors for destruction of alien dreadnought. The ship and all hands aboard are lost, he croaked, suddenly looking much older as he collected a facade cracked and tears pooled at the edges of his vision. His bridge crew looked away and never spoke another word about how they watched invincible Briggs break. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1603. Story number one. You have the power to see someone's level at stats. One day, while looking at levels, you find someone showing three question marks. With the title of admin above their head, the person looks at you and said, Isn't it rude to look at someone's level without their permission? Could have asked me first. Written by that 2009 weird emo kid. I almost spat up my beer after hearing that. There wasn't anyone else in the tavern, only the dwarvish bartender stood nearby. He was too busy cleaning a mug to acknowledge us. His stats were still there, high constitution and wisdom with a level of 30 floating next to his name. So I hadn't lost my mind. The ability still worked, and it just hadn't applied to her somehow. 
The lady kept watching me from the other end of the bar, resting her chin on the palm of her hand. She had pink eyes and a matching silky veil across the lower half of her face, but otherwise looked just as human as me. And gorgeous. A really stunning woman. How did she know about me? I'd never told anyone about my ability. It paled in comparison to all the other amazing skills in the world. I even considered it a curse at times, reminding me just how much weaker I was than my peers. This was different, though. A high-level individual could at least be perceived and understood. The lady's power broke the limits of my scanning ability. I couldn't even feel her aura. The only thing I could see was three question marks where her stats should be, except for a maxed-out luck stat of 9,999 and the word admin above her head. I didn't even know a stat could go that high. For some reason, the realization sent a shiver down my spine. Well, the lady said, aren't you apologizing? I looked away, gripping my mug. Sorry, uh, I'll, I'll leave. The lady chuckled. <laughs> I was only joking. Please, aren't you celebrating? Don't leave. I paused. How did you know? Uh, your fancy wizard robe looks brand new. Did you just get accepted to the academy? Uh, y- yeah. The lady raised a glass of wine. Then, cheers. I shyly approached her. Who are you? A fan of the magical arts, nothing more. You called my eye earlier today, during the entrance exam. I was sure that you'd get in. Good job. Really? You were there? Yep, it's part of my job, which is uh, to keep things fun. I frowned. That wasn't very helpful. The lady giggled. I never meant it to be. The entrance exam wasn't exactly fun either. The lady pouted. Why? I almost died several times, actually. And triumphed. I hung my head. I know, I know, but... But what? I only got lucky. The reason I passed was because I teamed up with whoever had the highest level. The lady raised an eyebrow. Really? Was that all? Well, uh, no. I I tried that at first, but the strongest candidates weren't interested in teaming up with a human. Still, there were tons of people with incredible stats that were being overlooked. It wasn't hard to assemble a well-rounded team. So what you're saying is that you gather the most competent people available and turn them into an effective unit. That doesn't sound unearned to me. If anything, it sounds like you were rewarded for a good party composition. I can't keep relying on this, though. My skill wouldn't help in many circumstances. And what does? There is no such thing as a perfect ability. Certainly, it is overrated. Trust me, you wouldn't want your destiny subject to the whims of fate. A little less randomness goes a long way to make sure that things stay balanced for the better. Try telling that to my new classmates. They'll learn in time, or suffer the consequences eventually. Getting lucky, or making the best of what you have is just as much of a skill as anything else. The fact that you had the courage to take the test, one that hadn't been passed by a human in decades, shows that you have created an advantageous position for yourself with your ability. Just like any other candidate. That's the problem with most... I mean, uh, most people. They all think they're above Fortuna's blessing, so they never bother seeking it, wasting their opportunity to enjoy the great game by playing it the safest way possible. Which is just boring, in my opinion. You made your own luck today. Be proud of that. I sighed, smiling. Uh, I, I guess you're right. Uh, thanks for... Uh... The lady was gone. I looked around the tavern, but I was the only one inside. When I asked the bartender, he said he didn't see her leave. 
She had already paid a tap, though. And mine. For the rest of the night, how lucky. Most of my peers, the new students that had just been admitted, were out celebrating with each other, so I didn't know if going out tonight would make me feel better. That conversation with a lady made drinking alone slightly less depressing. I regretted not asking her out, though. It wasn't until I sat down again and gulped down another beer that I realized I might have just spoken with a god. End of story. Story number two. Humans have a superpower. Written by Swirl Life, 1997. When the Terrans first made contact with the broader galaxy, it was a tentative and primitive. Their planet Earth resides in a far-flung solar system with less than a dozen planets revolving around it. Beyond even the furthest Federation outpost, their signals were very basic radio waves sent out to the Aether, and it took over 200 light years for them to reach the nearest Federation post office. Their message was simply, Is uh, anyone out there? Of course, there were. The Federation comprises of over 10,000 solar systems and 1,000 times that many allied planets. The first to respond back were the Quapoans, a race of insectoid people notable for their warlike disposition. There is hardly ever a time where they are not at war with themselves or with their neighboring planets, and the people of Kwapu are notable for their savagery and ruthlessness. It is not that we wanted them to go. They were just the closest with the faster-than-light travel capabilities from the Olympia system, so despite the Federation's preferences, the Kwapuians uh, were the first to encounter these humans. What they saw on that planet stunned them to their core. Now, there are, of course, over 10 million planetary allies in the Milky Way Federation, and while some of them have the concept of non-aggression, none could be said to be peaceful. The Federation itself was formed centuries ago in a fire system to prevent absolute destruction between various galactic empires. The majority of our works comprises reducing harm between warring factions and providing aid to refugees, because peace is never an option with empires that can appear at your doorstep within moments. But the humans... The humans have been warring with themselves since the moment they climbed out of the trees in the African savannah, according to their own records. In fact, the vast majority of their history seemed to be bloodier than the Quapuans, but that is not what the visitors to Earth found when they arrived. Because of the limitations on radio wave transmission, none of us could have known what to expect. But the report of the Kapoans brought back, along with a few ambassadors of Terran homeworld, shocked everyone on the Federation's High Council. In the intervening 200 years after the first signal transmission, the humans had not sat idle for a response. The Kapoans sent a delegation of generals along with their commander-in-chief to negotiate an immediate surrender on the planet and to make Earth a Quapone colony. Even with their special translator devices, the first discussion was impossible because the humans apparently had over 7,000 languages that they can speak and write, and the smartest of them are capable of learning over two dozen and using them all with equal proficiency. In fact, it is more accurate to say that the humans of their United Nations were able to learn the Kapowan language easier than the strange visitors could learn to communicate with the Terrans. 
particularly those from a nation called Alsa. With all the compelling clicks and trolls and soft human mouths shouldn't be able to make. We're the first to actually get a meaning across with the Kapoan generals. The first question was, are you friends? The United Nations was apparently formed about 250 years ago, after the second of the human world wars. There have been plenty of civil wars before, but never on this scale. The conflict supposedly ended with the country of America dropping two nuclear fission bombs on a separate nation of Japan. The devastation that these weapons can cause is virtually never used on one's own planet. For all the ecological and sociological impacts, less than 60 Earth solar cycles later, this United Nations was formed, and all war was outlawed across the globe. Representatives in international games called the Olympics solved disputes with feats of strength and athleticism that impressed the Quapoans greatly. In the intervening months, the Quapoans realized the humans only wanted one thing, Peace. Friendship. Matthew Rogers put down his paper, looking at the long table full of over a hundred different alien races. Their faces were gaunt, round, excited, and tired. They were scaly, furry, hairless, and many had multiple limbs. They looked inquisitively at this primitive Terran features. Only two eyes and thirty-two teeth. But they all listened with rapt attention as the human raised his eyes, sparkling with hope and gentleness and looked at each and every one of them in turn. Eye contact was something these Terrans were not afraid of. In fact, they felt it a sign of respect rather than a challenge. He spoke in ten different intergalactic languages, translating his words personally in addition to the translator device held in his mouth. For the briefest of all attention, he smiled as the High Council raised their hands and claws in turn, a unanimous vote to approve the Good Neighbors Act establishing Earth as a Federation embassy and a neutral ground for peace talks between planets. His grandfather's grandfather would be proud. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barkey, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakul and Arcadian. 